the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. I am so glad you've joined us. This is episode 518, Carrie here. And today's episode is brought to you by Ministry Grid. Get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash carry and by Convoy of Hope. You can help the war victims in Ukraine by going to convoyofhope.org slash donate. Well, today we are going to talk marketing. We are going to talk to a marketing legend, Tony Chapman, who I'll introduce in just a second. He has made a lifetime out of marketing, has been inducted into the Canadian Marketing Hall of Fame, had numerous global accolades. And we talk about the secret to marketing, how to remarket weekend church services and rethink your message so it connects. And we also go into his childhood. Uh, it's it's an, a recurring pattern that a lot of the leaders I talked to had very difficult childhoods. How did he overcome it? How did he become successful? Was that a factor in his success? And it's a very wide ranging, long form conversation. So here's, I'll give you the backstory. What was supposed to happen was I was supposed to interview him, then we were gonna pause, and then he was gonna interview me for his podcast and nationally syndicated radio show. So we're gonna do that. But like at the hour, hour and a half mark, he just kind of said, okay, let's morph right now. And you know what? It was a really interesting conversation, ended up being more of a dialogue. So I just thought, I'm going to play you the whole thing because I love bringing you fascinating conversations. So Tony Chapman, these are his words, by the way, is the product of a bipolar father who self-medicated with alcohol and a mother who kept a roof over his head. He went on to build two internationally renowned marketing agencies and a research firm inducted into the Marketing Hall of Legends and Canadian Marketing and Advertising Hall of Fame. But 10 years ago, he wanted out. We talk about that too. Tony became a conference speaker, then a host. And as the pandemic hit, he created the podcast and radio show, Chatter That Matters, which he considers his true calling. On the podcast, he shares stories that inspire and that make people feel human and believe in humanity. So you're going to hear like a non-edited version of that show as well as we flip the mic. I'm really excited to have Tony on. I think you're going to love this conversation. I thought about it for days after we had it. So pastors and church leaders, as you prepare for the fall, do you wish you could streamline and standardize your volunteer onboarding processes and trainings? I think the answer for that is yes. And if so, check out Ministry Grid. They have everything you need to streamline volunteer training all in one place. Ministry Grid, is the online tool to build, customize, and curate volunteer training in your church. They have over 700 training courses, and you can upload your own videos and resources. So they've seen churches add their own content, and Connexus, the church where I am founding pastor, uses Ministry Grid. We found it really beneficial. Here's the best news of all. They're offering podcast listeners to this show $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price. So for just $399 a year, you can get unlimited access for your church. Go to ministrygrid.com slash carry to get this special offer. And what are you doing to really help people around the world? What are you doing personally? What are you doing at your church? Convoy of Hope to date has helped over 100,000 individuals in Ukraine. They're actively distributing supplies in eight countries, Ukraine, Romania, Poland, Moldova, Bulgaria. And you know what? There's more. The average church can't get there. You just can't do it. You don't have the scale. Even if you're a large church, you don't. That's why partners like Convoy of Hope are so valuable for churches. So if you want to help or you want to partner with them, here's what you can do. Go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. They are fantastic people. 
convoyofhope.org slash donate. Check it out today. And now, without a lot of further ado, my conversation with marketing legend, Tony Chapman. Tony, welcome to the podcast. It's, it's just great to have you. Carrie, I've been a fan for a long time. We share a common uh, individual in Karen Gordon that we're both fans of. So it's just, it's great the universe brought us together. Well, I was, I was grateful for the introduction and really look forward to getting to know you better. I don't always start here, but when you and I were going back and forth getting ready for this show, you shared some of your origin story and like just your story of growing up. And it was like it moved me to tears. And I would love for you to share that with, um, with our audience. You know, I, I, I feel it was, it's a gift now. It was a bit of a nightmare then. And that nightmare was just uh, up until age seven or eight. I had two beautiful parents that were happy together and love. Uh, they were spiritually grounded. They had uh, four kids. But my dad started to develop a mental health problem that he self-medicated with alcohol. It was later diagnosed as manic depressive. And he would go on these uh, sometimes four or five months binges, literally barefoot, 30, 20 below zero, he would find a way to get to a bar. Um, and he put us uh, to the point of financial ruin several occasions, including you know bouncing checks. Uh, and even when my mom started to work, trying to go after her account. So he's just, it, it wasn't that he was a horrible person because when he was sober and he was grounded, he was one of the most wonderful people. I got so much from him on that side. It's just, Mental health was the reality that, and it impacts all of us because it's not just the individual that's suffering. It's the, all the people that are connected to that individual. So, but on the other side, I had a mother that was uh, a hero. I mean, she died of old age at 53, just trying to keep this house together, but grew up in, uh, uh, out in Saskatchewan, didn't know it was uh, her mother. Until uh, age thirteen, she thought her oldest sister was her oldest sister. So that's, oh, you know, and found it, out that her oldest sister yeah. was her mother. Do you know yeah. I've heard that story like four or five times from different oh. people, which is it, really, really it's, surprising. It's just shattered her, and then she was went to a convent, and then she got out and it's sort of fifteen and try and just. But she had creativity. She had energy. She she wasn't afraid to sew clothes where I would go to school in a bright you know, pink shirt with silver buttons because she happened to like the colors. And even though the rest, everybody else in the gang was wearing like, you know, faded blue Lee shirt. So, but it was just, just a great combination looking back now that it taught me resilience. It taught me to never put my family in that kind of financial situation. And it also taught me to embrace some of the simpler things in life because we didn't have a car. We didn't have you know, what was in fashion, but what we did have, uh, you know, as I had three loving sisters, I had a mother that did everything for us. And on occasion, a father that would come back into our lives and just brighten everybody with hope that maybe he had found, a, found his way back. Was there, and I know, you know, you have the perspective now being an adult yourself as a kid, I'm sure it was just confusing. But when you think about, like, it was a very clear time when you were age seven or eight around that time. There's a year where your dad went from, you know, a loving, caring father to struggling with mental health. Was there an instigating incident that you can trace out? Or was it just a, a big, I mean, sometimes mental health just kind of attacks, right? Like, you know, it's a great question. I talked about it with my mother on several occasions. And she said, you know, he was working for the conference board at a job way beyond his education, but he just had charisma. And he wanted to get a raise that he thought he deserved based on what other people were making that might've had, you know, the education, the pedigree. 
So he didn't get it. So he took a year off and uh, and he started to drink a lot during that year. And I think he was very depressed that, you know, that this validation he was seeking from this company. And I think that just manifested. I think his dad suffered from it. His dad's, there's a lot of, you know, shades of uh, murkiness around his grandfather. And I think it just sort of manifested itself. Thankfully, it didn't travel to the, our, my three sisters or I, nor my kids or my sister's kids, but it it hit him hard, and uh, you could tell when he was sober that the how sh- you know how much shame he felt in the situations, and yet the second he started drinking and that state took over, he was just a completely different human being. I mean, the story of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde kind of lived you know uh, through our home, but it teaches you resilience. It teaches you again, as I said, not to be in a situation where you're either going to go down that path or you're going to go. I'll never put anybody on that path. And, you know, for that reason, I think it 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 it, it created a, a real sense of purpose early in life. And I, in many ways, I think I was the, you know, took on that, uh, you know, even though I was the second oldest, kind of took on that older sibling and, you know, take, got this first person that found me to get a car, university education. So I, I, I created a bit of a different path. And, uh, you know, thankfully my mother was alive long enough to know that, you know, her son was going to be okay and not necessarily falling in her husband's footsteps. What was the process of uh, sort of finding, I guess you would say, a redemptive narrative in the midst of that story like? Because there's some people listening to this, I'm sure, who would have similar pain in their childhood, but they, they don't look back on that with any sense of gratitude. They're just bitter. And it feels in the narrative and even the material you've written and shared that, you know, you look back on your parents with compassion for your father and admiration for your mother and gratitude that, well, that didn't work out maybe as an ideal childhood, but look at what it taught me and look at what it produced. Did that did that come early in life, later in life? Like, what was the process like? You know, it's a great question. I never, I never went and got therapy. I always compartmentalize it. So I don't know what's buried inside me, but I do know that most of my life I focus on the present and the future. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't take, I don't take my old report cards with me. I don't have notebooks from my past. I don't really have a lot of pictures of my past. I kind of just, I'm always looking forward. And I think that the, the, where I realized that it's my destiny that I had to focus on is when I started going to work, uh, first of all, just producing parties with my friends and, and monetizing that creativity and then selling radio advertising that I realized I had something to offer. I, I I didn't have to be circumstances. And I think that combination of the two and being able, I remember one night I was, I, when I had a, finally had a car to get my mom on Thursdays and take her grocery shopping. And one day she broke down crying because she's paying for the groceries. And I said, what's wrong? I said, our washing machine broke. We didn't even have a dryer. Mm. And I, I just said, hold on for a second. The bank was next door and I had the money to give her. And I said, here, let me buy your washing machine. And I, that was a transformative moment for me because I felt so good uh, doing that. Now, mm-hmm. on the other side, it was my younger sisters that bore the worst of my dad and were the great pillars that supported my mom. And so I, I don't want to make it look like I was the, you know, the, 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 I carried the family on my shoulders. I did, but it, it was for me the ability to help others. Uh, and I think. I think it's not just financial, but emotionally and intellectually. Somehow or other started at an early age because my mother needed help, which is, you know, and and then later on when she had 
at, you know, her health issues and died from cancer, you know, it's, it's just a different insight in what matters most in life. And I, th I thank her for doing that. And my dad, by the way, got his, his sickness in check. They found drugs that wouldn't dull him to death. Mm. And when he died, his, his, his grandchildren adored him and loved him. Mm. And so, you know, that's a happy ending. He outlived my mom, which was shocked given how he abused his body for so many years. Uh, but he, you know, he left the planet knowing that his, there's love in his family. And, uh, and I think that's another incredible, uh, testament to, to my sisters, especially who had to forgive much more than I did. I got to leave home early. I, I, you know, that, uh, and I, I, I give them so much credit for having the, having a heart that could open enough to let him back in. It's a really fascinating study. I've always been perplexed by, you know, the people who are bitter about it and then the people who like you. And we've had numerous CEOs, numerous highly successful people who have had a really painful childhood, which brings me, because I want to get into your entrepreneurial journey. I mean, there are a few people in Canada who are as celebrated living legends in advertising and marketing as, as you, Tony. So you've had a tremendously successful career. But Malcolm Gladwell makes the argument, who's been a previous guest, um, I think it's in David and Goliath, he talks about dyslexia and the number of CEOs and highly successful people who have dyslexia. And the common narrative is, oh, you know, look at them. They have succeeded. They've succeeded despite their learning disability. And he makes the rather provocative argument that actually maybe it's because of their learning disability that they became successful because they had to figure out how to hack the system. They had to figure out how to pass in school when they couldn't read. And I wonder, because there is a, di like, you know, you look at Churchill, you look at so many others, there is a disproportionate number of highly successful people who had a tremendously painful childhood. When you look back on that, I mean, I'd love you, just any thoughts you have on Malcolm's thesis that perhaps it's not in spite of, but because of the pain that you excelled. Is there any resonance in that I, in your story? I, or? I couldn't agree more. And, and okay. maybe I'll take it outside of my story and just say yeah. some of the people I've interviewed that are that have you know fought their way into this country, refugees, that were people that were on a run. Uh, my parents were Holocaust survivors. Oh, wow. uh, you know, I grew up in a house where you know we had one bathroom and at any one time six borders because that's the only way they kept the house. And these people have incredible resilience and humility, and they have a desire to give back. So I think sometimes through that pain, you even, as you said, one path is bitterness. I'm a victim. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can spend the rest of my life blaming the world and my circumstances. Yeah. And then the other path that people follow and sometimes skip down that path is to say, if I survive that, I can survive anything. And I'm going to make sure when I'm on that path, if I see someone that's fallen off or veering the wrong way, I'm going to do whatever I can to help them because my life is so much more rewarding because I know what it is to be in a situation where it's very dark and very uncertain. And, and I think that the, the, those people are the ones that put, take the un out of uncertainty and the in out of insecurity. And that's what makes them, as you do with your work, makes them very special people because it, it, it's at that, it, I think there's so much that can be individual to individual, peer to peer, saying, I know what you've gone through. Uh, I, 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 could, I feel your pain and actually mean the words because they have felt the pain that provides so much more credibility and currency to someone that says, then if you think that simple foothold is a great first step up, I'm willing to take it with you. And I think that's, that's the blessing of a, of a tough background when you're on the right path. 
Yeah, I you know, and that resonates. I had a, a easier childhood than than you did for sure, and my parents are still alive, and like they have beautiful hearts, and they made mistakes like every parent does. I definitely made mistakes with my kids, but it's a different story. But the most painful period of my life was when I burned out about sixteen years ago now, and it was awful. And you know, I was able to, by the grace of God, pick the pieces up, and I wasn't very grateful for that season until about maybe eight or nine years after I burned out and I had a really good friend fly up here from the U.S., from Atlanta up to Muskoka. And uh, we were going for a walk and he was in a season of burnout and I was able to really help him in that season. And it was the first time that I had tears of gratitude for my burnout season. And that began to morph it. And now, you know, seven years later, eight years later, I see that as a gift. See, I think my thesis with people like you, when you're when you have such incredible insights into humanity and you have an ability to frame your words in a way that people go, I can relate to that, or I know somebody like that, or I really I I think that, that advice is pragmatic. I think a lot of your burnout, I'm curious, was it caused by just the sense that once you feed that, it almost becomes its own addiction because you you know, you, you just never it's so hard to define that quiet because you're you're seeing things that most people just, you know, somebody wiping their mouth with a napkin, I'd see he's wiping a mouth with a napkin, but you might see something different. And I find when I talk to people like you, I just find it's, it must be so difficult to sometimes just quieten this, this, and I don't use the word power because it sounds magical, but the quieten this ability to have insights into humanity that, that can provide prevention, that can provide a path curing and it's it's got to be tough not to be want, doing that all the time it is interesting you know I, I would say that's been the last mm, 15 years since my early 40s it is really hard for me to turn off the analysis switch or um, the ability to think at least that I'm seeing more than what meets the eye but I would say what led to my burnout was a really bad lack of self-awareness I was just ambition ambitious and driven and, you know, I spent 11 years in university, so history, law, theology, I felt like, you know, a car that was revving up for the starting pistol to go off. And then it went off when I was like 30 or 31. And I'm just like screeching tires, right? And down the runway. And that lasted about a decade and landed me flat on my feet. So it was a lack of self-awareness and a lack of understanding of what was really going on. And we had tremendous, you know, fruit in ministry, success in ministry, however you want to call it. But now I would say in the process of like being brought to a dead halt and that crash, and then 15 years of trying to figure out what the heck happened, what is life really all about? Um, you know, how do I make sure this doesn't happen again? And it's an ongoing journey. I'm still disentangling myself from performance addiction and success and all of that. So, but it's it's my my most favorite thing to talk about. I mean, you have an appetite for life, right? And I think yeah. that's that's what is exciting. And I I get so energized because I think I have an insatiable appetite for life. I, I people like I just really I'm so excited about you know. I described my two daughters, my oldest daughter is dad, you know, 2025, what do you think I'm going to be doing? And my youngest daughter is dad, today's Tuesday, let's not rush Wednesday. And they're very different kids. But I think that both of them are so blessed to have this one treasuring the moment and enjoying it and, and savoring it. And the other one excited about the future. And I'm going, 
it's, I think that when you, when you're at that stage in life, when you have, first of all, you have to have the, the, the means to be, you have to have the financial security, you have to have a job, you have to have a partner, you have to have a uh, spiritual grounding, what, and whatever you find your spiritual grounding. If you have all those things, it's almost like Maslow's hierarchies. You can look for that self-actualization, but it's addictive. You know, it, it's not, it's not an easy thing to turn off because you know, your, your, your consciousness and your awareness just keeps opening and opening and opening and there's new doors to travel and new, and it's, so I, you know, I understand why people like you, uh, can burn out because it's tough to turn off that tap because it's an exciting tap. It, it is, it, it, it is a beautiful yeah. tap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to your childhood because was it your mom who helped you open up a lemonade stand and that kind of lit something up in you? T yeah. Tell us about that. Like how old were you? What happened? And that started an entrepreneurial journey. You know, she must have seen something in me that, that because I remember one day I just wanted to shake my neighbors down and probably in those days it was for nickels and, <laughs> and, and to do a lemonade stand. And that turned into, this was before she went back to work and she could invest the time it turned into a project where I had to buy the lemons, rent the pitcher, buy the sugar, figure out the profit margin per glass. And then if, by then I just wanted to get out and before my neighbors go. And then she made me drag everything down to the park and find a sunny corner and not be afraid to sample some lemonade. And I came home and I don't know if I made anything more or anything less that day, but it was mine. And I really felt I earned it. And then I started, like, I threw a, you know, I threw a, a, a party in my basement for when I was nine or 10 for all parents and, you know, pinball games and tossing this and tossing that. And I just started, started looking at this opportunity of how creativity could be, could be, could create smiles and experiences, but also be monetized. And it was fascinating for me. Uh, that this existed out there. And a lot of it had to do with just my mom encouraging me to uh, go after this stuff and not, and, and not just, you know, uh, yeah, the lemon, the lemon, the Kool-Aid's in the, in the cupboard and, you know, go for it. But well, really, I was going to say, that's a really interesting approach that your mom took, like very um, emotionally sophisticated, like nuanced, because, I think there's a lot of parents who are like, here's the Kool-Aid, <laughs> right? I'll mix it up for you in this picture. You go stand at the end of the driveway and sell it. But she didn't do it. It reminds me, I'm, I'm prepping for an interview tomorrow with Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, Stephen Covey's son. And he tells the story of green and clean. So when his dad, Stephen Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, recruited seven-year-old Stephen M. R. Covey to do it, he didn't say like, you, you mow the lawn. He took him to the neighborhood taught him what a clean lawn, green lawn looks like, no trash, no debris, it's, it's, and then let him figure out how to water it. Your mom did a very similar thing. Like, here are the lemons, here's some sugar, you figure out the ratio, you trudge it to the park. Like, she, it wasn't a DIY, now go make some money. That was, that was really smart of her uh, to do that. And I think that I remember when my my daughters were young, you know, I'd get them to set up all their stuffed animals as a store and, and where to merchandise it and how to market it and take them into grocery stores and just talk about what they're trying to do to like, you know, is this good marketing or is this manipulative? Look, look you know, if you sit in the grocery cart as a, as a four-year-old and you're going along the cereal, that's where all the frosted flakes and sugared cereals are. And just trying to, you know, and I think it's, I think when parents, invest the time it's so easy to park them in front park kids in front of a screen and and i gotta be honest 
most kids would rather be entertained with what's on the screen than, than listening to their parents or playing what we grew up with because it's such immersive stuff. But I, I just, I'm fascinated. If I had time, I'd love to do a, a book on the lessons in life that your parents taught you. And I think huh. everybody that has put a dent in the, in the universe, little, little or big, I, I believe it all began because parents or a mentor or a grandparent or family friend or someone saw something in them that created a shining eyes and a beating heart and fostered and fueled it versus just sort of, you know, prescribed it. And I think that's, that's the magic of, of parenting. And, um, and, you know, and I, and I, maybe I'm just old fashioned, but I, when I look at restaurants and, Every every kid's on their screen, and you know, even the parents are checking oh, yeah. their phones nowadays. And I just go, I wonder if, if those, maybe those moments will never happen again. You know, maybe there's a whole different spark, and it's going to be a TikTok video teaching the kid about a green lawn or how to do a how to make profit in a lemonade stand. But I, I still hope there's that parent connection. To me, is everybody everybody I've interviewed, almost everybody I've interviewed, talks about how formidable those years were with their, even when they were struggling with their parents and what they learned. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can't leave this stone unturned, but your daughters have stuffed animals and you're trying to show them how to run a business and you're taking them down the cereal aisle. So yeah. we're skipping ahead a little bit, you know, uh, people will have heard your bio by the time they get into this interview, but I mean, you're, you're, you're at the top of the game and advertising and marketing and the whole deal. And you're trying to impart that to your daughters at what age and how did that go? Well, they were, uh, they were, I mean, I just started my second agency. So they were like, Alexander was four and Michaela was two. Okay. And it, Alexander and I would go, even before Michaela was born, would go out for huge walks in the mornings on Saturdays and Sundays because I had to commute to work. So I mean, I didn't, I, I, my time were there. And, and she was, she was always up early, even years later on vacations and stuff. It would be the two of us out there at five or six in the morning. And that's how it started. And Michaela came along afterwards, the two of them. But it was just a sense of let's turn every walk into an adventure. Hmm. Whether that was bringing an apple and finding a horse to feed, or it was uh, going through a grocery store. I would, even when they were older, this is an interesting lesson for some parents to think about. We'd be like, from the time they're eight to the time they're 15, I'd go into a store with them, say, you can buy one thing in the store, anything you want, one thing, but you have five minutes to make a decision. Okay. And my old and my oldest daughter would in in nanoseconds choose what she wanted. My youngest daughter would create incredible stress because of this paradox of choice. But they both worked through it. And later on, we and I've talked to him about it. And you know, like where I always think I had the great parent lessons. My my youngest reminded me just how much stress I created with her at a younger age. And my <laughs> old and my oldest said, "I wish that we could still do that because I would love to buy one thing." And just, but you know, it's just it's it's fun to look back and see. I'll give you the story, which is probably the proudest thing that ever happened to me. And yes, career has been wonderful, but I always said to them, you're Chapman sisters. And no matter what, when we're gone and mass suggests that we're going to be gone and you're going to be on your own for a long time without parents, you always have to have each other's back. It doesn't matter. It's irrevocable. I don't care if anybody tries to come in the middle of it. You're Chapman sisters. That, that, is, that is a bond. And when I, they graduated from high school, they had to write a little blurb of themselves. And many kids were very colorful in what they talked. And in both cases, they talked about being Chapman sisters and how much it meant to have respectively each other in their lives. And I, I cried because I went, mm. 
that that is a, a, a job well done. You know, and it's not yeah. that it was just the fact that all I did was like put the seed in a little bit of water. Thankfully, their personalities, as different as they are, were so compatible. And even today, uh, I there's no one that ever could come between the bond of those two girls. And that's something I mean, obviously, their mother had much more to do with it than, than I did because she's nurturing. Them. But my role in it, I, I feel so proud. You know, I have two sons and they're 30 and 26 right now. And we had always, I never put that, I think I put the desire in them. And certainly it was my wish as a dad. But one of the greatest joys of parenting adult kids is when the kids are together and you see them, just the bond is so deep and it's it's fantastic. I love the idea of it intentionally seeding it. So Tony, I want to go back and pick up the breadcrumbs about how you got into marketing and advertising and a little bit of that. So it goes from the lemonade stand to, where did it so go from I there? Mean, I mean, you know, I produced a couple of parties and then one summer I find myself- Okay, the, produced a couple of parties. What does that mean? So, well, I would, I would produce New Year's Eve parties and take oh, the wow. risk and bring in a band and, and invite friends and I, the whole sense of risk and reward. But if it was a great party, people had a great time and there was profit made over at the end, I, I was- I just thought this was what a wonderful way to, to you know, I never liked working for an hourly wage because hmm. I would do the math and go, wow, you know, those days it might've been $3 an hour. I go, wow, 40 hours, it's 120 taxes and stuff. It just, it was always the feeling. And so the parties was a sense that I might lose money, I might make money, but like the lemonade stand, it's my money. And how so old were you started. when you're producing these New Year's Eve Oh, parties? I was in my teens. So I started okay. taking over, like I was always the organizer of camping trips with my friends and stuff, but you know, I would do Halloween masquerade parties and Valentine's Day parties. And then one day I find myself working a block and a half away from my house at this uh, field and stream club. It just happened to be, uh, uh, and I was there to dig a rose garden. I was going to get minimum wage. And I went down there. I didn't have a hat. I didn't know. Nobody had bottles of water in those days. And he <laughs> drank out of a garden hose. And the first thing the guy says is dig a, dig a rose bush. And I, I, I mean, I, the only calluses I ever had in my hands was maybe mowing the lawn. I just wasn't a do-it-yourself. And I'm literally three hours into the job. And, the, I'm, and I go home for lunch because it's so close. And I, I, there's this local paper and I'm reading it just to keep away because I just want to go to sleep. And it said, commission sales uh, uh, at Seafox Radio. Called the guy up and he said, yeah, come on in. I mean, it's, there's no guarantee, but you start off on the phone and you get paid $50 every one of these uh, ad packages you can sell. So I, I, I quit that afternoon. I finished the day with the person, finished my rose garden. I said, look, this isn't for me. You're going to get somebody bigger, stronger. You'll be happier with and this guy was very honest and said, thank you for being so honest. Went the next day and that week, so I started on a Tuesday. So Tuesday to Friday, I sold seven packages, $350, which is like 120 hours of digging rose gardens. <laughs> and, and I, so what I really got excited about was at the first, and, and thankfully I had the next year's lessons because the first year was, oh, I can make so much money. And I did. I actually, I, I crushed that summer. I did, I did so well and, and, because I, you know, I, I really believed in the product. It was a great way. It's almost to get people introduced to radio. The next year, I go back and I'm on the road, and uh, I'm and cold calling is the whole business of retail radio. And I'm driving up St. John's Boulevard in Montreal, and I see this A-frame sign opening soon. I go, "Wow, what an opportunity!" I pull in and I walk in, and it gets that smell of this southern barbecue, and the place is, you know, about a week away from opening. And I 
I've got a Samsonite briefcase and my initials on it and I get combination lock and this thing's just bulging with those. all the yeah. flyers and all the rate cards and everything that you think you need for it. I'm walking in, I sit down to the owners and they say, hey, listen, if you're here to sell us advertising, uh, we can't, we, we have no money left. We're all in. We've borrowed from our family and friends. We'd love to advertise. Maybe come back and see us in a couple of months. And I'm walking out. This Now this briefcase feels like it's about 75 pounds. Just as I'm getting the door, I hear, hey, kid, are you hungry? And I turn around and they go, we're just about to bring out a test plate of ribs. We, we, we'd love to get your opinion on them. So I, I loved ribs, crushed the ribs, fantastic meal. Next day, I accidentally show up at the same time to get the test plate of fried chicken and gravy, biscuits. And by the third day, we'd become friends enough that they cobbled together $300. And I, and I, I, I put it into radio advertising and I pushed the system as, you know, best producer, best announcer, beg for the best time, great ad. And I show up opening night, I'm banging on the open door and there's nobody there. And, and <laughs> just, I can see the owners, a couple of friends and I could smell fear, not ribs. Yeah. And then as I'm there, there's just, it wasn't a big restaurant. You know, they had a little bell and I heard the bell and I turn around and somebody comes in. And then somebody comes in and about half an hour later, the place is jammed. I start busking tables and along the way, I start talking to people. How did you hear about it? And more than once I heard, I heard about it on the radio. Oh, wow. And that was my calling. It was, oh my God, an intangible idea put out in the universe that can create a niche, that can connect somebody's dreams to the customers that matter. And that became my pursuit. So I went to university because I wanted to show my parents that I could get a degree, put myself through school selling radio. And when I moved up to Toronto, I went to work for somebody for a year, worked my tail off. At the end of the year, I got my, you know, my salary and I think $3,000 bonus. And I said, you know what? I'm not cut out for this. And I started my own business. And I've been an entrepreneur since. Always knowing that I would go into any year with the downside being I could lose, I could make no money and I could lose right. a lot, even everything I had. The upside being there wasn't any upside. And the and as long as we had a great product and we had the energy of wonderful people and a fantastic culture, it proved to be one of the most uh, the most one of the most I would say it proved to be an incredible recipe for success because I was still connecting buyers and sellers mm -hmm. with intangible ideas, creating a niche. And I was working with some of the most amazing people, people that, that I, even now, this is, you know, it's the first agency I started in 79, I'll run into and they'll talk about what the best place they ever worked. And it's not because it needs, because we were a great culture. Mm -hmm. And I replicated that a couple of times um, and loved every minute of it. And more often than not, felt felt I was on the right side of the social conscience until maybe later, years later, when I realized that some of the things we were marketing and branding and enticing, uh, paid our bills, paid our employee salaries, we made a great living. But I question now, you know, I never did tobacco because my mom died of lung cancer. But, you know, there's there's brands that I wonder, should I have been involved in categories where there was a lot of sugar or categories where, you know, you were selling hope, you know, this, this hair is going to make you beautiful. But, you know, I, it, I, what I did learn along the way is how wonderful it is to be part of a creative group 
who often sells way beyond their capabilities and has to figure things out. And so you're constantly on this uh, wonderful, uh, uh, you know, instead of re replicating the same thing all the time, we would do, we would come up with ideas that were so big and so exciting, but we had to make them happen. We had to make them work. And that was just so energizing. I never got to your point of burnout because I always had great people and that shouldered a lot. I was more the lead singer, but I mean, I had, we had everything from, you want to use that analogy, to a great ensemble orchestra and, mm. and roadies, and we had infrastructure. But I, at the same time, it was very difficult for me to turn it off because I loved it so much that I just, every moment I wanted to be in the middle of it all because it was just exciting and energizing. We're going to dissect advertising, but I want to go back to cold calling because, mm -hmm. again, just connecting the dots, we're 500 and some odd guests in, but I'm remembering, um, so you're a teenager, basically, and you're cold calling people selling radio ads and very successful at it. I'm thinking about, I think it was Ryan Hawk from The Learning Leader who had to cold call Nexus Lexus, that whole legal thing, uh, when he was straighting it, like in college or out of college. And then uh, one, a literary agent, Esther Federkevich, who was my agent, uh, she did the same thing. She was like 19 years old and was told to sell Bible studies to pastors and like beat the 50-year-olds at their game. What were some of the things you did cold calling that made you successful? Looking back on it, what were like, you know, I'm going to give you the secret to my entire life that began with cold calling is think of yourself as a Yoda, help mm. people get to where they want and deserve to go. So don't come in there like you're the most important person. You're the hero. My advertising is going to save your business. I have the next greatest. I have the most ratings. I have the best announcer, all the I, I, I's. And instead, if you just take a few minutes, it doesn't really take much. And I'll give you a great story on it. And try to understand the quest they're on in life mm. and their journey. And, and, and say, can I really help them get to where they want to go? And if you're sincere in that and you're honorable in your intentions, it, it, it's no longer cold calling. You're, you've, you've arrived to help somebody. I'll give you a great example. If this was years later, I was working with Holt Renfrew and I asked them, you know, Holt Renfrew, if you were a character in the story, who would you be? Because I'm a big into storytelling. And they said, oh, we're the preeminent luxury retailer in Canada. I go, really? I said, does that really matter to anybody? Because it sounds... And I said, you know, when I, uh, I go into your stores and they ask me to travel the stores, if I'm not dressed, they don't even... Uh, uh, acknowledge my presence. And if I have, yeah, I was afraid it, to go into Holt Renfrew. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been in one, to be yeah. honest with you, because it well, just intimidated the snot I mean, out of me. When you say you're the luxurious preeminent retailer, you better be the most preeminent customer. <laughs> and then even when somebody would come up and say, you know, hey, hi, uh, can you show me where the, you know, I'm looking for a pair of uh, uh, skinny black jeans. They, they, they'd get sort of look up and point. So I went and I worked with Holt Renfrew and I said, I'm going to help your organization. I said, oh, what, what kind of marketing idea is this? Not a marketing idea. I'm going to change your, your character in the story from being the preeminent luxury retailer to the fairy godmother. Fairy godmother. I said, yeah, you don't get to go to the, bell, the ball. Your job is to dress Cinderella. And if somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm looking for a pair of skinny jeans, you can point them over there, but they can easily point to their, their phones now and buy it. But if you just said, yeah, absolutely, why, what's up? And they go, I'm going skiing, skiing, jeans, a price ski party? Have I got an outfit for you? Mm -hmm. I'm going, you know, I'm about to do a, a, a podcast and 
this guy's like, he's got one of the top podcasts in the world. And I, I just, you know, I want, I want, geez, you know, next thing you know, you're buying a headphones, a shirt, you've got, a, <laughs> you've got your, 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 you know, and that's selling into the moment. And so anytime I cold call, you know, my intent was I wanted to actually bring in the customers that mattered. I wanted to find a way. And to me, that is cold calling. Cold, the worst cold calling is coming in like I did the first day in that in that rib tickles joint with my packed briefcase wanting to open it up and talk about why we're the greatest thing that's ever happened to the radio waves. But really learning about cold calling after that moment was, you know, my job is to actually bring you customers. My job is to do whatever I can. You've put created this business. You've got this flower shop. I want to bring you people that when you walk, they walk into your store and smell the flowers, they'll talk about it. And today, obviously, with Instagram, they'll write about it. You know, I, if you if you're if you're this is how you want to present your flowers. This vase at the front of your store is your statement. This is your 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 Michelangelo's David. Why don't we do an ad about it? Why don't we talk about when you first walk in the store, don't look at all the flowers. It's just focus on the centerpiece and see what went into that centerpiece and then decide, is this the florist that you want to craft flowers for your wedding? And that's the stuff that I would do as, as a cold caller. And people say, oh, you're such a good salesperson. I wasn't selling anything. I was, yeah. I was enabling this dream. I was bringing together this little... Uh, idea that was sitting in this flower shop that this, you know, and, and bringing it to life. And that to me is cold calling. And that's how I have approached my career in advertising, certainly in speaking and hosting now doing the podcast is how can I help that guest and my listeners get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. I, I am just a, a little, I'm the kind of Yoda. I don't get to fight the evil empire. I just get to help Luke Skywalker. And I think that attitude has always worked well for me. So is that a gifting, a personality? Like, how did you, that is not intuitive because most people do open the briefcase and go, hey, have I got something you need? How did, how did you come about that attitude? Because I think it is still remarkably rare. I think it's curiosity that I'm, yeah. I, I have, listen, I have a weird, as my wife will say, I can lose my car keys 15 times during the, the, the day and I can't remember what the wordle word is 10 minutes after I've done it, but I can take, 20 pieces of information and synthesize it and compress it into something that really matters. And I don't know why, I don't know how. It's not like I just have to go in this meditative stat. It just, that's my brain functions. So when I can walk in and see a flowers, a florist or, or a parts dealership or, you know, whatever's, whatever I'm walking into the situation, I have an ability to kind of understand the quest that they're on and what matters. And I sent, I sense it, I see it. And because of it, it allows me to quickly move it from this adversarial, you're trying to sell me something uh, I don't want to buy, to much more about this person gets or at least is interpreting where I'm heading or what my dreams are in life. And therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to what they have to say because they might help me. They might help turn that dream into reality. And so it's not a sales technique. It's not a trickery. It's not sleight of hand. It's just going in there with the curiosity and the compassion and the empathy to really actually care about like I, nothing made me happy to hear that bell ring and people coming in to buy their rips. I, it wasn't, well, I didn't care if they were going to buy another radio campaign. I was just so excited that they, they were maxed out in their credit cards, trusted me with $300 and people were now coming in to test the, the food that I was, you know, test driving a week earlier. So it's, it's, that's to me, the magic of, of, 
um, being in the services business. I never wanted to sell a tangible. Look at this TV set, 64 colors, high definition, picture in picture. I, that wasn't me. It was the intangible. But what if we did this idea? What if we put this out in the universe? Would people respond? Small towns are collapsing out of, you know, all the young kids are leaving. Why don't we create Craft Hockeyville and these towns can bid and, and the winning town every year is going to get a marina makeover and then two NHL teams are going to come and play an exhibition game in, you know, uh, uh, Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And that was just because that, it was, what an incredible way to, to elevate community spirit. Even if you didn't win, just getting everybody to campaign to be to be where Hockeyville should go next. So that's, that's so a let's long talk, answer. But. No, that's a great answer. So let's yeah. talk about Craft Hockeyville. So most of our mm -hmm. listeners are American. Um, you know, a few of you follow hockey. Too. It is too. But, yeah. you know, imagine your sport, whether that's football going on the road or um, whatever. So that was a pitch for, like, that was your work with craft or with the NHL? Or let's let's break that down as a case I'll study. I'll break it down. Imagine sitting there and literally that almost the same week, two of my clients briefed me that they have the NHL rights. Mm. Pepsi and Frito-Lay and craft. And they want to do a hockey program that's original. And the idea of what I did was to bring these programs into grocery stores and around it, they build these big displays. Because if you ever got your product off shelf and on the display, you'd get so much more velocity because people were people don't go up and down the aisles the way we used to shop. They mostly go around the perimeter. And by that, you mean the end cap, like you've got the some cap, kind of feature. The feature, yeah. where the traffic yeah. is, where yeah. the, the action is, right? People call it action eye. So with Pepsi and Frito-Lay, I looked at hockey and I said, you know, that's, People have rituals when they get ready for their game. And many hockey fans even have a shrine. They wear their sweater. They get their snacks. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an event. So for that idea was simply, why don't we, for the lucky person, not only will they win a, 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 a shrine in their home from the, from, the, from the hockey night in Canada, where football would be the NFL. So real, like oh, top of the line shrine. But more importantly, uh, Mark Messier is going to come in with a Stanley Cup and watch a game with you. So it's called That's Bring on the Stanley Cup. Cool. But the insight was, I'm there at home. This is my shrine. And next, and my buddies come over to watch the hockey game or the football game. Now I'm going to have Tom Brady come in with, with, with you know, <laughs> and watch the game with me. So that was that one. The craft was a little different because craft, the food wasn't really consumed watching hockey games. Yeah. And nor was it really food to make you an elite athlete. So the idea we came up with there is, what if we again had small towns bid to have an arena makeover and an NHL teams come and play a game to really validate their identity? Because they were their identity was disappearing. Walmart was out in the suburbs, taking away from Main Street. Young kids were leaving. You probably saw it within the, the whole church group. I mean, they, the youth was just abandoning small towns. Yeah. And we said, if we could create this craft hockey villa and make the grocery stores the campaign headquarters. And I'll tell you something, Pepsi bored with the idea two or three years in. Craft is still going probably, it won the promotion of the decade. It's probably 15 years. I have to believe they've sold $3 billion worth of groceries, but they've made a lot of small towns proud. And even again, if you didn't win, getting your, your uh, business improvement association, getting the chamber of commerce, Mayor's office, everybody together for this bid of why you deserve to have this professional hockey team in your in your thing, just created a lot of public spirit. So insights, one was into it, the, the demise of small towns, one was into my 
rituals of, of, of uh, watching a hockey game, two different brands, two very successful programs. And that to me is what marketing is all about. It's not about the brand that matters. Again, brands are going to think themselves as a Yoda as what can I do to help that individual? Uh, and that's just where I started to really gravitate as I got later in my career to brands that really mattered. Mm. You know, brands that had a, you know, with Dove, I did a lot of work with Dove trying to help women deal with their, the fact that most women don't feel beautiful because they're the, the, the photoshopped world of the Kardashians, you know, and starting to work with brands like that to me made it even more exciting because I could elevate the, uh, to a higher purpose than just selling product off of that action. The interesting common denominator, and I mean, I follow Seth Godin, Jeff Henderson's been on this podcast as well with the four campaign, but the, the interesting thing is, uh, and Donald Miller too, you know, it's not the product. You're not trying to tell everybody how great the product are. What you're really doing is you're making the customer or the client, the even more so the customer, the hero, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, we're going to transform the small town arena where all the kids learn to play hockey. We're going to... Um, you know, make your family room, your den, your man cave, whatever it is, a place where Marc Messier could come and hang out. And that is really, really cool uh, to think about that. So I want to... Um, I just want to bring, yeah. bring that, because I would argue that even in your world, when you're building communities and you're creating a sense of culture, you know, am I going there for, you know, a weekly check you know, I've, 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 I've got sort of, uh, I've gone through it as part of my weekly ritual or do I, am I aligned to this church? Cause it's going to make my family stronger. It's going to mm. reinforce our values. We're going to be a better human being. I can have a higher purpose in life. And I would imagine that the pastors that are focused on their congregation's quest in life and understanding that they're there to help sometimes a nudge, sometimes a shove, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lifelong relationship, I have to believe are the better congregations. And more importantly, I think the pastors that feel they have a higher purpose and a higher calling in life. I think that's such a perceptive insight. So let me be, you know, take you inside the church world, uh, which you're not actively a part of, which is great. I love outside perspectives, Tony. And I think a lot of pastors are still stuck in the, oh, I worked so hard on this sermon listen to my sermon, don't miss it, come Sunday. Uh, it's going to be the best series ever. So we're marketing a product, even though it's the Word of God. I know I'll probably get some mail about that, but people know what I'm talking about if you're on the inside. How would you reimagine that? How would you not make it about the series, about your teaching? You know, if I'm the pastor, and I've, I've probably been guilty of this at times, where it's like you, got, you, you don't want to miss this series. How do you flip the screen view so that it becomes about what God could do in the life of the person rather than just, oh, come listen to me, come watch me, come hear me? Well, at first it takes a lot of humility because people in a position of power that is, in your case, interpreting the, the words of God and, and into a sermon, uh, it's, it, it's easy to lose your humility. Mm. The way the whole church is staged where there's, you know, there is a stage and there's a pulpit and a microphone and robes and everything else that goes with it. There's, there's a real... Uh, barrier, you know, it's it's the it's the uh, you know it's the person coming out on the on the balcony as they do in the Vatican and and having any audience. And I think the difference to me would be the pastor that says, you know, I heard about this story. Let's say you wanted to talk about generosity, mm -hmm. 
you know, I heard this story about uh, um, a coal miner uh, and every, he'd come home with his paycheck every Friday and he'd put his entire paycheck into a, a bag by the front door with a clothespin. And as a family, we could go into that and take whatever we needed. And at the end of the week on Thursday, if there's enough money left, he would go down to the pub and have a pint of beer. And suddenly having people involved in that story, that story, by the way, really resonated with me when I heard it, because, you know, the immediate thing is I'm just going to, I can take whatever money I want, but you suddenly realize that this, that this is precious. And at the end, the person that earned it might deserve that pint of beer. I think when you put narrative that's highly personalized, it doesn't immediately come with the fear of God or the love of God and much more about fragility of humans and the, and the, the quest they are in life and families and divorce and, and you know, uh, pain and anger and all the, everything that's just surging through that congregation, every often hidden, especially I would imagine in church, that a lot of bravado like you are when you get entrepreneurs together, that they want to want to share their pain. They all, and, and that, you know, if you could start connecting into that, I imagine that's what the great, pastors do because the people I've always been motivated listening are very spiritual. Yep. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-spirituality. I, sure. I think there's incredible energy out on this planet and positive energy. And whether you're a phenomenal pastor, you are a thought leader, you are a philosopher, you are a nurse, just, you know, keeping emergency room together with duct tape. Um, those, that's where I want to begin my sermons. So we can do that in the sermon. And I think there's a lot of leaders who do it. But I think one of the marketing challenges that a lot of church leaders have is, and again, I'm, I'm going to use some language that I hope people who listen to this podcast regularly will understand and know me and understand my heart. But if, if the church had a product, the, and I think it's a lot more than that. Ultimately, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's just say that out loud. But the way that we um, gather people on a Sunday is we gather them for singing, we gather them for uh, hearing a sermon, etc. And so when churches think about marketing, they think about how do we get people into the building on a set hour, or how do we get people to watch on YouTube, or how do we get people to follow us on social, etc., etc. So when you're thinking through that marketing nugget, what is some advice you would have for church leaders about better ways to approach it or maybe classic mistakes that they need to avoid in marketing? So, first thing is we're living in this age of noise. Yeah. And, and we're all suffering with this incredible math problem. There's just too much and too many chasing a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. So we're, like, we're drinking content from a fire hose. And even within that fire hose, you put your best sermon. You put your best foot forward. You, you, you put your labor of love and you put it out there, there's a very good chance it's going to get spilled on the floor. Yep. That's the reality of what we're dealing with. So what you have to figure out is, well, how am I going to get the attention of the people that matter most to me? And I think we're so caught up now with social media, how many likes, validations, uh, what was the reach, how many downloads of the podcast, as opposed to maybe taking a moment and saying, did I change one person's life? Did I... Did I change my life? Did have I have I found a different way to connect? So you can do all the the you know the the I don't want to say trickery, but it is algorithm manipulations with your SEOs and your hashtags, and you can get it all out there and you're fly fishing it everywhere. But the more personal 
I feel that that is directed to me. Second, you said the word, you know, let's, we're all here because of Jesus Christ. And I'm going, that's, that's might be your assumption, but I wonder how many people are there just because they need to belong. They want mm. to be part of a community. They're lost mm. at home. They don't have a relationship anymore. That the love has disappeared. They're, 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 you know, every, you know, and they come to your church and they sing and they're part of stuff and they're, and words that are resonating to them. And, and maybe that, and you'd say, well, that's, that's what Jesus Christ is. Well, maybe, but, to, but the other thing I would go is I'm not sure I would, I would be, I would care as much about that as I would care about that person so isolated, so lonely, so lost, potentially even uh, in danger of hurting themselves. Yep. Finds a way through your congregation and church to feel that they have a, a higher purpose. They have a place in society. Mm. That to me is such a gift. You're very rare. And I'd be saying to your the church people, that's your higher purpose. That is the yeah. gift that you've been given. The other thing I would do is to just like, and I know that, you know, you guys, you've done a lot, you've been such a pioneer in what you're doing, but it's the, it's the setting and the stage and the, and the, uh, you know, it's versus the status quo. What else can happen within those that time frame within the church environment that improves people going home and talking about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. That, that ha- you know, if you said, you know, one of the things I want to do is have 5% more of the people in my congregation before they go to sleep, think about what I just said today. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I, I, I'm plan- I want to plant a few seeds that I want to water. Or I'm going to bring my congregation together and we're going to write our sermons together. We're gonna crowd. We're gonna crowdsource. We're gonna invite you in. I want you know. We're gonna talk about you know uh, uh, individual quests. And uh, maybe maybe the sermon becomes an individual in the congregation getting up and talking about their quest in life, and and their you know the human flaws and all the all that surrounds humans. And that is where the sermon comes in. I don't know, but I would be looking at ways in which the audience felt they were part of it versus part of you. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, when we started this a few minutes ago, you said it takes a lot of humility. And I think you're right. It takes a lot of humility because it takes the spotlight off of me and puts it elsewhere. And Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Intuitively, the really great leaders do that. Now, you've been at marketing for several decades and been very successful at it in in multiple uh, eras, you could almost call them. But what has changed? It sounds like the story and the focus on people's stories hasn't changed, but what has changed in marketing? Well, it actually has. So first of all, it was always the brand that was the hero. And now I think the brands that realize that they're going to matter, they have to matter to me. So uh, yeah. the, the consumers become the hero, even though they always talked about it, but it was Frosted mm-hmm. Flakes, the start of a perfect breakfast. Coke is sure. it. Open happiness. Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. It was very, very much declaration that, that, that we were very special. That's changed. But the most important thing that's changed and why I got out of it is marketers went one day from spending budgets, which allowed them money for experimentation and creativity and trying new things, to having to invest those budgets. And the difference between spending and investing was profound because now it was, is this going to work? How much does that cost? What kind of return can I expect? And it was like the, it was almost, I'd rather do nothing and not fail than try something and be scrutinized for spending money that didn't work. So experimentation and creativity. It's not to say it doesn't exist. There's some incredible stuff going on around the world. Harder and harder to get attention. So there's really interesting things. 
But I would say then from a category-wise, it, it was a lot less about let's talk about that idea and how do we make it bigger and how do we make it work? Always with a pragmatic budget attached to it versus here's my budget. If we're going to spend it, it better work. And that's, that's, a, that's a big difference. And then the final thing is just how many, how much fragmentation there is, both in terms of products. So you used to have a product that was unique. You know, if you wanted an energy drink, it was either Coke or Pepsi. I mean, that's where you got your caffeine. Now there's 10,000 energy drinks and, you know, including the Red Bulls of the world. Uh, if you wanted a shampoo when we were growing up, you know, the, the brand new one was the, you know, I think it was something that beat the greasies because everything else was mm. now, you know, if you're redheaded, curly uh, and have dandruff, you have a shampoo for you. So the, fragment, the, the amount of product out there is, is so fragmented that nothing really holds. And then the other side of it is the channel fragment fragmentation. You no longer have a captive audience. When I watched I Love Lucy or All in the Family, 40, 50, 60% of households were tuned into that show. Mm-hmm. American Idol in, in its, you know, uh, in, in its heyday had a fraction of what I Love Lucy did in, in, in her heyday because there's so much more choice. So as you're starting to find it's becoming very challenging to have to make a big impact on a big audience. So the other thing you have to think about, and I have to believe it's so true in your business, word of mouth. Uh, promises made, promises kept. Uh, identifying a smaller targeted audience and really showing how you matter and how you help them. So mothers and daughters, you can talk about uh, beauty because neither one of them feel beautiful about themselves because of Hollywood and Kardashian. That gives you permission to talk about it. But you don't necessarily going to have the same message to somebody that spends their whole life taking a thousand selfies to put five up on Instagram. So it's so it's less about drift nets and trying to catch everybody in it, and much more about fly fishing at the right time with the right message, and again with the humility to say, "I'm not the hero of the story, but if I again if I can help you get to where you want to go, then that that's a, that's a brand well served. That's a job well served." Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, because um, you've done a number of reinventions over the decades. So back to the personal narrative. In many ways, you've kind of seen it all and, and had it all. Like you're in the Marketing Hall of Fame. You've been recognized nationally, internationally for your work, etc. cetera. Um, how have the highs left you feeling? And um, often, you know, in my experience, they turn out to be you know, really great for a moment. And then you're kind of on to the next thing. What, uh, talk to us about some of the highs in your career. We're, we're so in tune. Um, so, you know, we won a lot of awards and I have had that recognition. The only recognition that really matters. My daughters were in the audience to see me go in the marketing hall legends, just because they were at an age, they were sort of senior in high school to realize that I was, that I, you know, in front of a lot of people, um, you know, I was going in the hall at the same time as the founder of uh, Four Seasons, Shoppers Drug Mart. It was an incredible year. And they sort of just put me in uh, that company. And I thought I was very proud to be their dad that night. But as I said to you earlier, I don't really focus on the past. I, yeah. I, the second I left advertising, people for years later said, do you regret it? And not even for a moment. I did it, had fun, but I, was, I wanted to do something new. And I, I always love a tightrope. We have to jump on. And now as you get older in life, you have more experience, you have more things in your knapsack, you understand different circumstances and patterns. 
But being on that tightrope and wondering if you can get across, if you can figure this out, if you can reinvent yourself again, if you can find something of relevance, that excites me. My biggest fear in life is retirement and losing my cognitive abilities, even more so than my physical abilities, because I love what I do and I love the next move on this you know, chessboard or tightrope. So I don't, there's really have no, be no, you know, there's be no like high career highlights that I look back on. What I'm very proud about is my age that I'm still relevant, mm -hmm. that I'm still putting out content that matters. I've become even more back story. Like this used to be, here's the, oh, here's the founder of Capital C. They just won agency of the year. Now I'm just the host that talks to people like you and tries to learn lessons in life and bring them out and synthesize them that other people can benefit from. And I'm going, that's probably, if you ask me where I'm getting the most satisfaction in my life is right now. Like this mm -hmm. moment, like being being a, a host of a radio show and a podcast, being a host of conferences, being a speaker at conferences where um, you, you can help guide the content, the flow, the energy, the, 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 the value uh, the currency of the conference is such a rewarding place to be versus being the, oh, that's the guy that runs the agency. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I don't know that we're a similar age or stage. I don't think we're too far off, but you have successfully reinvented yourself multiple times, buying and selling companies uh, for about a decade or so. You know, you went on the road, you were a speaker, you were a host, then COVID hit. And you launched Chatter That Matters, your podcast and your radio show that's uh, been syndicated. And what are some of the keys to reinvention? Because I think that's something a lot of leaders are thinking, particularly in light on the other side or in the middle of the great resignation, leaders are reinventing themselves all the time. So what has yeah, helped you do that? You know, I've, I see opportunity, which I think is just a gift of entrepreneurs. And the opportunity is there's a need that needs to be served. So when I went out first as a conference speaker, I was trying to distill everything I learned about marketing, but instead of share it with a handful of clients, I can now share it with a much larger audience. But I had to create the narrative in a way that you can almost compress three decades of lessons into 40 minutes and ideally a workshop that people could walk away and start applying. And I love doing that. And I, and I, and I, really had great ratings, a lot of word of mouth. And because I felt there was such value, you know, it wasn't just, uh, and I love the speakers that climbed Everest. I love the people that achieved ex achieve things against all odds. I don't have that story. My story yeah. was simply, I have, I have some learning that I think if you imply to your life, was called stop telling your story, become part of theirs. So same mm. principle. Don't be the hero of the story. You know, let be the be the Yoda or the enabler. And then the second thing happened was as I started doing that, I started looking around at these conferences, and it looked like almost a milk cat had sprayed everywhere. One theme, but this agenda of different speakers and presenters, and and you could see the audience just like you know, I'd be waiting to go on. And I, the energy, and they're walking out the room, and somebody's talking. They're on their mobile phones. So I came up with this role of conference host, not an MC, but Imagine if I was hosting a conference, so you were part of it. I'd set the table. I'd get the audience to understand over the next day, you're going to fill your knapsack with really understanding some powerful lessons in life to get to where you want to go. We all have it inside. We all dream of being better. We all dream of doing more, giving more. 
well, today this individual is going to take you there. So I'd set the table. And then when you got up and, and, and did your, your keynote, before you, I let you go, I'd say, well, Carrie, hold on. Before you get off the stage, let's sit down. I want to, have some, I want to chat with you. And I'd interview you. And I'd, either, I'd amplify your key points because sometimes you got to tell them again. And I'd ask the questions to the audience. But it's easy for you. Listen, you're charming, you're charismatic. You, you, know, you founded a church, you have a massive platform. But there's a lot of people here that, that, that when they hear the mailbox, they, they, the hair goes up in the back of the neck because they're worried about it. Is that another bill? So when you're telling all this wonderful stuff about bettering yourself as a human being, they're also dealing with just the pragmatic safety and security. How does that come together? And you lean into that because now I'm getting you like, wow, this is what we want. This is what I talk about with my friends when having a beer, my intellectual, the people I shape my content with. This is the conversations we have. I want to bring that out. And then the audience leans in. I'll have fireside chats. I'll moderate panels. At the end, I'll say, you remember the beginning I talked about we're going to go on this quest to find a way to better ourselves, to do more, be more. Let's, let's recap. First of all, Carrie, another round of applause. Here's the three lessons we took away from that. And then we did this and this. So at the end, I've crystallized the value of the conference. So when they leave and go back to work and right away in this world of investing money, was that time well spent? Was that worth the money? They say, absolutely. Here's what we chased. Here's what we learned. So I, it, it, it was crystallizing. So that's a, that was a reinvention of it. But a role in trying to convince people who are hosting conferences that they, they, no, no, my vice president does that every day. No, no, I don't want to be your master mm -hmm. ceremony. I don't need to introduce anybody. I just want to be the third party that synthesizes. And then when COVID hit, I said, I guess that's done. Am I going to retire? And right away, I started like suffocating the thought of not to. And so I convinced Chatter the Matters, originally RBC, which is a big bank in Canada, one of the biggest yeah. in the world, actually, to sponsor this where I would, I would, because I was so worried about small business owners, they'd say, we're going to personalize the stories of small business owners so we take them personally. And I'm going to go to my Rolodex of all these smart people that now have time because of COVID to come in and offer advice. And so we would do a show each week with a, with a small business owner and, and three experts. That turned into RBC going, we love this. Can you, do, can you expand it? Can you take it? And we, so I started talking about not just small business owners, individual quests, refugees, immigrants, indigenous rights, uh, LGBTQT, small business owners, women-led entrepreneurs, Olympians, uh, you know, uh, Brooke Henderson, one of the most winningest female golfer in Canada's history. Uh, Harry Connick Jr., Guy Kawasaki, you know, uh, uh, Susan Kane, the people you've had on. And I, I, RBC never once asked for anything other than let's just keep sharing these stories of positivity and possibility. And when you can work it into the show, what we're doing in mental health or in climate change or, or, or upskilling youth for, the, for their future jobs, Bring it in, but don't feel like you have to each time. And it's been going on now. I mean, I think I'm 120 episodes and it's just been an absolute labor of love. What scares you about retiring? I don't have, I've studied this a lot and I know people that live the kind of lives that we've lived where we're, we're creating and curating and contributing to the conversation. When that turns off and you have nothing to fill the void, the math says you're going to get sick very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we, you, you know, you're probably the same way. When I go on holiday is when my body, I don't get sick a lot, touch wood, but when I go on holiday, that's where I've got to watch it the most because I've just turned off all the, the things. So I know I need to live this life. I want to know that uh, 
I want to dig deep and find out about you. So when I'm interviewing you on my podcast, I, I, I'm finding a side of you and turning the lens, the prism in a way that something is going to be of immense interest in my eyes. It scares me when I no longer have that opportunity. My wife says I'll probably do stand up at a retirement home. And even if I, if I don't remember what I'm talking about, at least there'll be a microphone in front of me. She got me a microphone as, a, as an ornament for my Christmas tree. So that's, uh, that's how much I chase microphones. That's fantastic. You know, I've taken the last two Julys off. Uh, just, you know, part of that is season of life and discipline, but it's also an experiment on numerous levels. One of them is, hmm, if I'm off for a month, is this a little bit what retirement feels like? And both times I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, I just, I love the ability to contribute, to be part of the dialogue, uh, to try to help the leaders that I have the privilege of serving. And I, I, I like the idea of reinvention too, because if it's the same thing for 40 years over and over again, I think you can get a little stale or bored. Well, talk to me about your mentorship, because now I'm thinking, by the way, I'm just going to take this and turn this into my podcast too. So just so oh. you know that... So oh, talk great. to me about your your mentorship because I love the fact you're founding pastor, but you've got a whole new group of people coming in. You had to kind of surrender what you created oh, yeah. to other people. Talk to me about how that came about because passing the baton, it, it, I didn't have to do it. I always left and started something new. You you created a legacy and then had to turn it over. And I want to. I'm interested in how difficult that was for you. It's a strange thing that lead pastors do. Um, I mean, if you think about a CEO, right? Like when you sold your companies, it's not like, oh yeah, uh, you know, Tony's down the hall in a cubicle sitting there working on new ventures. It's like, you're gone. Like, you know, whatever the contract is, you're gone. And so I'm still part of the church that I founded. But I, I think of it in terms of three levels of an organization, three levels of leadership, Tony. And this came to me maybe a decade ago or so while I was still lead pastor. But uh, level one is nothing runs without you. So you can barely take a vacation. That's like the startup phase. The uh, and, but, but a lot of people stay in that startup phase, not because they're startups, but because the leader has never really developed a team around him, around her. And I definitely was there. Like I started organizations. I started this company. It's like you're in startup phase. Everything is 100% dependent on you. Hopefully you don't stay there long. Level two is things run without you. You can take a vacation, you can take the weekend, you can take a week or whatever. And I think a lot of leaders end up getting there, but very, very rare. And it takes a lot more intentional leadership development is that uh, things don't just run without you, they grow without you. And that's where you've really equipped the, the values in your team, the mission in your team. You've given them agency, you've given them autonomy. And I think we got there in the church because when I stepped out of the lead pastor role, my successor, Jeff Brody, did an incredible job and it grew to bigger than when I led it. And I was still involved, but I'm not really involved at all anymore other than attending and giving and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, can it grow without you? And that's what I'm working on in my company now. It's really developing people. It's developing my team and saying, well, you make the decision or what do you think? And so I'm still the voice. I'm still the guy behind the microphone. But a lot of the strategy, a lot of the outlook is, is driven by others, guided by me. But I want to get the company to the point where it grows without you. So uh, that was, that's a long process. And it involved me stepping back, realizing that I'm not the product. I'm not the key to the success of the organization. Yeah, I can get it started, but it's going to take the values. And in the church, 
it makes a lot of sense because church has been around for thousands of years. It'll be around a lot longer than I'm around. And it's not really mine, even though I started it, right? Like that's not, it's not a business you can sell. It's, it's like something that lives um, in the hearts and minds of the people. And obviously, you know, wasn't, if you have my faith system, even created by God or created by humans, it was uh, of, of divine intention. And so it's really not mine. And it's my, uh, my responsibility to pass it on better than I found it or created it or led it. So just talk to me about it because I, when I was researching uh, to the interview you, I was fascinated that, you know, when you talk about your upbringing and going into law, which is a very pragmatic, quite prescriptive. I mean, there's a lot of creativity in law. Don't get me wrong, but to get, to get through that first gauntlet is an awful lot of, uh, it's quite rigid. And yep. yet, as I, the more I hear you, you're a philosopher, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, study of human life. How, how did, I'm curious how law started that way. Cause I've met some really interesting people, including, you know, uh, Susan Cain who started off as a lawyer yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, like these people that kind of, did you go into law because you were trying to impress your parents or it was, it was, or did you, it was that really a vocation that you thought you'd be, you, you would love to do? No, uh, you're, you're right. Very perceptive. I think I was probably trying to impress my parents. I was eight when I decided to go into law. It's funny. I've talked to my sisters about this. I have three sisters and I have three the, sisters too. Yeah. I don't no, know. Are you the eldest? No, I'm second oldest. Second oldest, okay. I'm the yeah. eldest. And there was just an expectation of, and I knew it. I don't resent it. I'm actually grateful for it because it shaped my life. But I kind of knew from the time I was little, I was going to get an education because my parents never got beyond high school. My grandparents got like third grade, fourth grade in wartime Europe. And it was just expected. And, you know, this is, this is like, it was the early 70s, I guess, when I'm eight, mid 70s, when I'm eight years old. And- there's no internet. It's like, you're going to be a firefighter. You're going to be a, a, you know, baseball player or what are you going to be? And I'd heard that lawyer was supposed to be good. So I just decided it was going to be a lawyer. And then even through my teen years, I saw it as probably prestigious as, oh, you would be successful. It's, it's a key that opens up a lot of doors, but I didn't really know what was involved. And again, if you're under 35 listening to this, you're like, how did you not know? It's like, there was no internet. I mean, unless you, you heard it from people around you, you listened to your parents. My parents thought it was a good idea. I remember dating and, someone. And TV, the TV narrative was always the lawyer, oh, the yeah. prosecutor, the Perry Mason that in 45 mm-hmm. minutes could solve any, any, you know. LA and, law. Uh, LA law. I mean, LA law was a great show. It was show. a glorified profession. Yeah. I mean, it was, it know, was glorified. Nice, you're nice right. suits, nice cars. I mean, Brian Bomba said my my dad's lawyer had the nicest car, therefore I was going to go on and become a lawyer, right? I mean, it was... Yeah, yeah, I think there was probably that gravitational pull and I've definitely had that gravitational pull to success, Tony. And so, you know, it was like, well, if I'm a lawyer, I'll be successful. And I remember I was dating somebody uh, probably just before I got accepted into, into the law schools I had applied for. And she asked me, why do you want to go into law? And it just stop me in my tracks. And I realized I, I have no idea when I want to go into law. Now I've wanted this for like 15 years at this point, 10 years at this point. And I just made something up. I said, because I want to help people. <laughs> it's like totally made up, totally made up. So I don't know why I wanted to go into law, but you landed, I got into the law school of my dreams, Osgood Hall. And, you know, 
so goes the journey. And you're right. It was really rigid for a free form thinker who doesn't like to be controlled. Law school kicked my butt. It was, it was hard. But you got through it. And then yeah. you're, you know, you've done all the, everything you need to get called to the bar. Yeah. And then you find this new calling. And I'm, that yeah. to me was curiosity. I like got 15 year dream slugging it through one of the toughest law schools in North America, uh, getting called to the bar. Uh, being let the, you know, this all of a sudden you're no longer in cement. You're about to climb into the world of everything you dreamed about. And, and then you decide, you know, this isn't right for me. Yeah, it was, uh, and that was, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, so uh, it was it was a supernatural experience. And it's interesting because there are people you can meet who say, I hear from God every day. I don't hear from God every day, Tony. I, I don't hear from God very often. I read the Bible, I pray. Uh, but there was a period between first and second year law where I had a series of what I would call supernatural events happen in my life. Uh, that made it, well, one, one I'll tell, it's not that weird. I was just working in a law firm because I was a, a person of faith and I thought, okay, I need, I need to find an ethical law firm because, you know, lawyers are sometimes questioned for their ethics. And I'm like, no, nah, with the kind of person I want to be and the kind of person I hope I'm becoming, I, I want to practice law ethically. So I'd found that firm. It was in my hometown in Midland. And I was working one afternoon in August. I was 24 getting ready to go back into second year law. And it was around three o'clock in the afternoon. I was finishing working on a file and I had this daydream, this like vision, this moment. I was wide awake, but I saw a vision of myself in my mind, 20 years in the future. I was 44 years old, not 24. Wildly successful career-wise, but personally morally bankrupt. My family had fallen apart. I wasn't married at the time, but my family had fallen apart. My kids hated me and I was a moral failure. And I just knew that the, I, I sensed in that moment that that vision, that law wasn't for me, that what that vision meant was that law wasn't for me. And I'm like, holy cow, that's crazy. I left the office, went into the library of the firm and was just sort of looking out the bay window, reflecting on what had happened, going, what just happened? And I felt this gravitational pull to look down the street. I turned to the right and I could see my home church that I grew up in. And the part of the church I could see was, I knew to be the pastor's study. And I felt a sensation of voice that said, you should be in there. And I'm like, what? Wow. Like, I, like in, in, in like a hundred career choices, ministry was number 117. Like it was, it wasn't even on the list. And I always thought, oh, I guess that's what you do if you can't get a real job, right? Like it's not prestigious, doesn't pay a lot of money. And I'm like, Really? So the day's winding down. I go and pick up my girlfriend, soon to be fiance. We go to my parents' house for dinner. I've known her since first year law. We started dating in first year, my now wife. And we had never talked about ministry ever. We talked about our faith, but we never talked about ministry. And we're driving to my parents' place for dinner. And she turns to me out of the blue and goes, have you ever thought about going into ministry? And I'm like, You'll never wow. believe what just happened in, uh, today yeah. at the office. Like, it's crazy. And that started a discernment process. I was encouraged to finish law. My dad encouraged me to do it. I'm glad I did. But then resigned why, from why the law society. Glad, why are you glad you did other than making your dad happy? Well, it was making my dad happy. But I think the greater purpose is, you know, I do know a little bit of law. People, when I started ministry, when I got into the churches, people would ask me, are you still using your law? And I'm like, well, I'm not negotiating contracts or like, <laughs> you know, 
No, but I think the answer now is absolutely I use it every day. Law was such, like you say, Osgood's one of the hardest law schools in North America. I mean, they kicked my butt. I was straight A's in undergrad. I dropped to like a B average in first year law and I'm like, oh, this is real. And I still remember like I had 72 pages of single spaced study notes for my first year in men law course. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life academically but it, it changed, it taught me how to think critically. Yeah. Not, not to be a critic, but how to think critically, how to analyze, how to look. So now what do I do? What do I do? I help leaders solve problems. And in, when I was leading a church, I could bring all those analytical reasoning skills into the pulpit and I could craft a message every week that hopefully helped people see what the issue was and help change their mind. It helped me understand how to lead a team. And etc. So you know, I, I look back on that with great gratitude and a lot of fondness. Do, do you think we're the, the concept of critical thinking and learning how to, uh, you know, how to synthesize and prioritize and and you know decide which way to go? Is that does that exist when you're studying to be in the ministry? Does that exist in other places? I mean, is that something that you learned in law that should be? fundamental for education? You know, it's a great question. I've never been asked that, Tony. And it exists to a certain extent in seminary. So I went to a mainline seminary. And I mean, we studied, you would think everybody there is like, you know, God, go, 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 go. But I I had a few professors who had lost their faith. And like a lot of people have over the years. And we studied German higher criticism. I studied a little bit of, uh, you know, history and so on and so forth. But it wasn't the degree of rigor that law school was. Like law school was like the West Point of critical thinking. It was, and, and almost, you know, I know a lot of lawyers, almost any lawyer who went to a decent law school will tell you that it was um, really difficult. I did not do particularly well on the law school admission test, the LSAT. Um, I had enough to get me in, but it was my undergraduate marks and my reference letters that got me into Osgood and some other, you know, Western and Queens and some of the other schools that I applied to. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would be helpful because if you look at what happened, like I think we were better at critical thinking in the 90s when I graduated seminary than we are today. If you look at what critical thinking has happened with social media and real news versus fake news, Uh, One of the great laments, I think, of this last decade is that people's ability to think critically has plummeted. I mean, I, I, my belief is, and I, I, I'm always trying to get people to think in the middle ground. I don't care what the situation is. Is there a middle? And I look at social media hurting people like a sheepdog herded into these camps with like-minded people who think only read like-minded content, who only validate each other's like-minded and then become very angry at the other camp because they don't agree with them. And it's, and I think our politicians are fostering this. I think social media, because that keeps eyeballs monetized because you're, you know, you're, you're getting validated. And I think that, that the moats around these camps is really where the middle ground used to stand on. So I'm fascinated with what you're doing with your community and, not, and we're going to talk, I want to also talk about leadership, but just the sense of, is that the reinvention? Should the reinvention of organized religion be much more around the middle ground 
versus just simply being, this is the ground to stand on. And I, and I, I say that because I, that's, an un, that's an unmet need. Society's always, the, the, the greatest renaissance in society has been when we've come together, debated, reached consensus. Not, not everybody's in, always happy, but we're advancing together. And I've seen what I've seen now is this world being torn apart. And I'm wondering it, what's going to step in there in the middle, like Martin Luther King did, like, uh, you know, uh, Gandhi did in India. What are, what's going to step, what's going to bring uh, our world back together? And I, I see it in the United States. I see it in Canada. I mean, the greatest democracies are under threat because we don't believe in each other anymore. It's me versus you. It's Republican versus Democrat. It's us versus they. Is that not where religion can step in and go, this is a reinvention that we can do that's less about dictating this is, the, this is the way to lead your life and much more about this is the place to lead your life? Yeah, I think it can be. I don't think we are doing a particularly good job, but I think we, we can be. Um, I am a middle ground person. And I think, you know, I've done quite a bit of research. There's a great book by a Duke University professor, uh, Chris Bale, called Breaking the Social Media Prism. And he makes the argument that uh, these stats are close, if not completely accurate, but we can fact check after. 6% of the people online who hold extremist views are driving 73 or 76% of the divisive online content. So most people are like you and me, Tony. I'm sure we don't align on every single issue and everything. But you know what? We're, we can get along just fine. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have to vilify you. You don't have to vilify me. And we, we say in my company now, because I've been out of direct day-to-day -day church leadership for about seven years, is we want to create a space for the good people to show up on the internet. That's what we want to do. Like, we believe there's a lot of good people I had, I had church leaders in my backyard for a couple of days and we hung out and had meals and went boating and I was just building into them. And I'm like, we were all sitting around the, the fire pit in my backyard yesterday and we were all talking about what was the highlight of the last 36 hours we spent together. And they asked me and I said, you know, meetings, times like this restore my hope in humanity. We were not all from the same denomination. We didn't all believe the same things exactly about God or the Christian faith that we shared. Um, but my goodness, what united us was so much greater than what divided us. And I think one of the mistakes the church has made, and unfortunately, this is when we get into the news all the time because somebody takes a big stand and is willing to go to jail or is, you know, claiming persecution or is saying, these people have it all wrong and I have it all right. Um, Jesus, who, who I follow, was a great, like you said, like Gandhi, like uh, somebody who brought people together. Martin Luther King, highly controversial figure, also a pastor. A lot of people forget he was a pastor. Um, but, you know, I went to Ebenezer Baptist Church a number of years ago. It's a tiny little church um, in downtown Atlanta. And, you know, Dr. King united a nation. Now, he was deeply controversial in the time, but as he said at the time, like there were a lot of, I've interviewed pastors who are now in their 80s who said, I was around when Dr. King was making his march. And their great regret is that they didn't do more as white people to support the cause at the time because they were too afraid. He was rumored to be a communist. He was rumored to be this. He was rumored to be that. In the same way that we see aspersions cast on civil rights leaders today. 
And they wish they had done more and subsequently did a lot more. But I think, you know, the church gets into the news when we mess up and we mess up way too often. But I think if you really look around, Jesus was always bringing people together who didn't belong together. When you really start to study scripture, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which most people would know, what's a Good Samaritan? They're Good Samaritan laws, right? Your vehicle is broken down at the side of the road. You know, I stopped to say, Tony, are things okay? Do you need, do you need me to call Is your cell phone out of battery? Like, what do you, what do you need? Um, that, that's a Good Samaritan. Now, the radical nature of the Good Samaritan story is that the Samaritans in Jesus' day and the Jews were enemies. They hated each other. It was, it was like Democrats and Republicans. Mm. And Jesus was Jewish, but the hero in the story is a Samaritan. And so he's basically saying, my people walk by this guy who got beat up at the side of the road, and then this despised enemy, this progressive, this QAnon person came along and took care of him and paid for his convalescence. And you should do the same thing. And Jesus was always building bridges, always building bridges, always reconciling people. Um, and it was really controversial in his day. Ultimately, it got him killed in the same way that it got King killed. But I think we should be bridge builders, not barrier erectors. It's interesting, and I, you're going to be so much more versed on this, so bear with me. But from what I understand, yes, Jesus was Jewish, but he also plays a central role in Islamic religion as well. Yes, he is seen as, and, and again, others could speak better to this, he is seen as a prophet. A prophet. His, not his the, not the son of God, but a prophet. No, but so, a prophet. He did. So wh- and whether, he, he plays a role in Hinduism as well. Yeah. So w- yeah. whether whether he is the son of God or not, I can't argue, but I can say to you that, that we need individuals like that in our society now. They're going to come forward and pull people out of what they think is their like-minded camps. Uh, and, and, and I'm just, I'm hoping that we can, there's still time for it because the power of social media is the more that I can, you know, there's a great expression in idle minds is a devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. And the more people feel they lack purpose, we know online, the mental health issues, the loneliness, even though they're part of a thousand communities and 3000 best friends, you know, they're, they're dealing with this, uh, fear of missing out all the inadequacies and, you know, that's what social media fuels. They fuel yeah. this tension and this angst and this anger because they want you staying there. They don't want you going from Seinfeld to American Idol and, and another channel. They want you in this world. And I'm just w- wondering, you know, it's just as I speak to you, I'm wondering, you know, is is there an opportunity down the road for, for religion to unite, you know, a, a, you know, Islam, Christianity, Hindu, you know, the Jewish faith. Is there not the extreme edges, would the, the, yeah. but in the center saying, what can we do together to bring people back, to put the human back in humanity? And I'm wondering if, or is it so competitive that, you know, I, I exist because I have created such boundaries around Christianity that there's no possibility I'm going to, unless you're willing to adopt those principles, I'm going to bring a drawbridge down. 
Well, I think there's a lot of unnecessary division between the different world religions. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make, and, you know, talk to an Orthodox Jew about this, talk to uh, someone who actually follows Islam, is not just, you know, you know, born in a particular area of the world. One of the greatest mistakes you can make is say, well, all religions are really the same, which is a really popular mantra. That's actually not true. And an Orthodox Jew wouldn't say, no, we're not the same as Hinduism. And and, uh, an Orthodox Hindu would say, no, we're not the same as Judaism and we're not the same as Islam. But that doesn't mean that we have to attack and fight each other. In fact, you know, as a pastor of a local church for 20 years, what I always thought about on a regular basis and was committed to Tony was making sure that our church was representative of the community, that our church should have a diversity that reflected the community. It should have a a racial diversity that reflects the community. It should have an economic diversity that reflects the community. Because if you look at a lot of faith systems, a lot of churches, synagogues, mosques, et cetera, et cetera. Often it's a substrata of society. This is where all the rich white people hang out. This is where all the suburban people hang out. And it always made me feel really, really good when our church was as diverse as the community that we're in ethnically, where it was um, economically diverse. So we had people who lived on the water and also people on social assistance, and they were in community together. And if you think about what I love your idea about how religion can be fuel for unity, where else does that happen in the culture? Because for the most part, maybe in public schools, elementary schools, but elementary schools are very postal code or zip code dependent, right? So if you live in a rich neighborhood, your kids will go to that elementary school. If you live in a poorer neighborhood, your kids will go to that elementary school. So it's different. So I think religious communities have a tremendous opportunity to unite people. And if you've got a culture club going on, well, that's too bad. And that means that you're going to be, because we didn't just have big services, we had small groups. We had hundreds of people in small groups. And what I love about the small groups is that diversity then shows up in living rooms. And you have people breaking bread together and getting to know each other. And they're not necessarily living in the same neighborhood. And they don't all work in the same profession or occupation. And they don't all vote the same way. So I think we need more of that in our culture. And unfortunately, the church isn't always that, but it should be that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think the, you know, I would say the only time you see some unification and it's very short-lived because you're living vicariously through a championship sports team. It's something that pulls everybody together. They all wearing the scars. But when it comes to humanity and being better, I agree with you. I think the vast amount of people there are really good people and we do everything we can to be good. But as you get pulled apart, it's almost now you're embarrassed to do it. And it'd be, I think that's a fantastic vacuum to fill. I just think it, the, the courage and humility is going to be, because I, I don't, I haven't studied all the religions. One of the things I would love to do if I had time would be to study more on this. But for all their differences, the, the unifying part of it is it's about community. It's about respect. It's about, uh, uh, being a good Samaritan, generosity. I mean, there's a lot of very positive chords that come through. And whether you're playing in this country in Western, the blues or punk or hip hop, which is, you know, the, the metaphor to different religions, it's still the same chords. It might sound a little different. And, you know, so I'm just interested in what, like, I, I want to 
transcend if I can, and I'll let, I'll, yeah. I'll let you hijack the interview again. But I, you did a big pivot in your life because yeah. you had a great, you, you set it up the way you wanted. You broke the status quo. You started looking at online and technologies and communities, and you could have just done this the rest of your life. But what made you move from being, you know, the pastor to someone that said, maybe my calling now is to help. I think it first started very much centered on helping churches reinvent themselves and the leaders of churches to now even extending to leadership in general in terms of how do we elevate society with a lot of the principles that you, I think it sounds interesting enough, the critical thinking you learned as a lawyer but the values that you learned as a pastor. So how did that all oh, come about that you went from, you know, uh, you know, the lead singer to being somebody behind the scenes going, I'm going to help produce and, and, and reinvent and elevate churches and congregations. And from what I understand, you do it all over the world. Yeah, it probably seems really intentional. It was more of an experimental journey than anything and an uncertain journey, but I'll give you the brief narrative. So, I led some local churches for 20 years, started with some very small, declining Presbyterian churches, have a lot of affection for Presbyterianism. Uh, we started to see some growth. Uh, we became a really rapidly growing church, one of the, I think, the fastest growing in the country in our denomination, and one of the largest. And then around that time, I thought about, well, what about starting over again as non-denominational? It would be an easier bridge to people who don't go to church. We think we have something to share with them. Etc. So in 2007, that was 95, I started at those three small churches. We um, voted to become a non-denominational church, started over again as Connexus Church. I led that for eight years as the lead pastor. And I just it just got a lot bigger than I thought it would. We had over 1,000 in attendance, maybe 1,100 my final year as lead pastor, and three to 4,000 people who called our church home, which being north of Toronto is, you know, rather, rather large. And uh, it started to freak me out a little bit because I'm like, oh my gosh, like what happens? This isn't mine. It's a church. The church has been around for thousands of years. It'll be around a long time after I'm gone. Uh, how do I steward this? And how do I make sure I don't run this thing into a, into the ground? Because I'd seen a lot of clergy get stale over time. And I really started to think about succession. And we had a great team. And, you know, talking about the three levels of, levels of leadership, nothing runs without you. Uh, things run without you or things grow without you, I thought it's time to really position our church to grow without me. So around the time I turned 50, I uh, approached a guy that I had hired as a youth pastor about eight years earlier, and he did really well in that. And I asked him to become our director of operations. He led us through the construction of our broadcast location, which we did in 2014. And then in 2015, we went through a discernment process where I said, maybe it's time for me to step back to become lesser and make Jeff Brody the lead pastor. And so we did that. And that was a, a lot of prayer, a lot of consultation with elders and wise people. And in the fall of 2015, I stepped back. And that was that was a, you know, a prayerful step saying, I don't want the church to be dependent on my leadership. Because what happens a lot is you get, you know, somewhat charismatic leader or something, there's a lot of growth. And then you know, that leader steps aside or gets stale and the church just kind of slides down. The church is bigger than me and more important. But how I didn't know I, what was ahead. I didn't how, know what was before ahead. Before we get to that, how much of this was, I don't want to lose Jeff Brody and it's his turn to take it over versus your sense that it, it was time to let somebody else 
grab the rudder? Very astute question. Some of it was definitely a factor because we're an hour north of Toronto. Uh, getting church leaders to leave a big city or come up from the U.S. or wherever, because we had, we had global attention at that point, or at least American attention at that point, was hard. And he, I thought, was the best person I knew in our orbit to lead it rather than doing a big search. And I probably thought I had three to five years left in me to the point where I was in my mid-50s. But I also realized if I was Jeff, who's a decade younger than me, I'm probably not going to wait around till he's 45. If I was Jeff, I wouldn't wait around till you know I was 45 to see what this guy does with it. I probably would have moved on. We've had that conversation since then. And he said, if you didn't move then or a year later, I probably would have moved on. And I'm like, okay, good. That was a good call. And at the end of the day, it's not about me. Like that's like, if you're le- if you leave nothing when you're gone, did you really lead it well? Yeah, but you hear, Carrie, there's a great book called The Founder's Dilemma. You had the courage to let it happen, and I'm sure Jeff didn't do things that, like you would have done. And there was things that changed that you might not. And you had the courage to let it go. And if you read the book of the founders. And you are a founder. Whether you, you, yeah. You, know, oh, yeah. you can't I'm, sell the church, but you're still... No, this is that's your my title, founding pastor. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, to have that ability to realize that, as opposed to when he comes in and says, look, I'm leaving because I'm going to find my... Well, don't leave, I'll quit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, that creates the sense that I only got the job out of blackmail. In this case, mm-hmm. it happened organically. When did your, between this entire period that you're talking about, from, you know, taking over three failing churches to this... When did the breakup, when did your breakdown happen? Your mental breakdown? It happened about 11 years in the year before we launched Connexus Church. So it happened about 14, 15 months before we launched a church. So you you have this complete meltdown. You are, I mean, it's a serious one. You you describe it as, you know, how suffocating, uh, how people describe it. A year later, you decide to start something brand new. So... (laughs) I'm also okay. stupid, Tony. So, okay. you know, there's that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious <laughs> because, you know, that's, again, what I find. You must, the, the year off where you're trying to heal yourself, your brain still keeps going saying, what's next? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So I was, you know, and fortunately for me, burnout takes so many different forms. And for me, it was more like an implosion. Um, I just lost my motivation, lost my joy, lost my energy, and it was it was three really dark months. And I was I came clean with the elders. First, I thought, okay, I'm really tired. I'm going to take a few weeks off and I'll be fine. And it got worse, not better. So I came back and met with our, our governing board, our elders. And I just said, I'm not well and I don't know what's going on, but I might be burned out. And they were fantastic. They were just, they were, like, it'll make me emotional. They were just so compassionate, concerned. Do you want a sabbatical? And I kind of knew myself well enough to say, if I took a sabbatical now, I don't know that I'd ever come back. And I felt like I was done, but I felt like, you know, in my faith system, God wasn't done with me. So, you know, I, I just, I, by that happened in May of 2006. And by September, I felt the first flicker of hope. And I had a lot of muscle memory. Like I knew how to preach. I knew how to deliver a sermon. So I took some extended time off, did a lot of counseling, a lot of like, crying, grieving losses, getting some sleep. And so started to get a little bit of of energy back in the tank. And then a little flicker of hope and excitement about the future came forward. And I would say by the end of the year, I was walking up straight again. I was was feeling maybe 60 to 70% back to normal, 
which for an energetic entrepreneurial guy is a lot of energy. Um, but it was, yeah. And then, and then the next year there was a series of events that, that led us through that. But I would say it was another couple of years before I really found a new normal and a healthier normal, but I was healthy enough to like help launch a church and uh, do everything that, that was required, but I, I was still leading with a limp. So yeah. I got to ask you a tough question. So sure. when you say God wasn't done with me yet, was that your excuse to just continue to be, uh, you know, even though when you were approaching burnout, you're just like, this is, this is how I could justify. Cause I imagine your wife, the yeah. people around you could see these signs but was that an, is that an easy thing to put into your vernacular to give you permission to, you know, uh, you know, defeat it? And I don't use the word addict as a negative, but defeat this insatiable appetite to for everything you're doing. I mean, you, it, it, is that is that is that ever that way that you just go, well, because God's not done with me, I have permission to do it. I felt like I had no gifts to offer. Yeah, I, I think if I look back on it, I was probably clinically depressed. Yeah. And what was the gift of that season is I had elders, I had friends, I had mentors, I had a family who said, it's not over. And when I prayed about it as a person of faith, I did not feel released from my calling to lead ministry. Like from a career perspective, I had job offers in Toronto and law that would pay two or three X what I would have started as a pastor. And then I had an opportunity to serve at a larger church in Toronto at 2X, what I started as at these little Presbyterian churches for. But I really felt a calling to these churches. Like I felt that at a personal and spiritual level. And so, you know, it was a, a career of downward mobility. And I came up there for a lot less money than I would have made in Toronto and I just didn't feel, and you know, I'm a believer in living wages. So what do we do as a church crew? It's like, we're going to pay our staff a living wage, not a crazy wage, but like a living wage so that people don't have to beg for groceries yeah. or live on social assistance. I just believe you should be a fair it, and just employer. It's nice to get um, the free pie. It's not nice when you need that pie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but, but yeah, I, 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 it's not an excuse. I think it's, it's a fair question, but I really felt like, okay, I'm not released from this yet. And now I have to find a new way to live. And so the gift of that burnout, Tony, was I realized if I go back to my old pace and my success addiction and performance addiction and all those, those things that somehow, you know, people had an authentic life change in the midst of that, but I wasn't the healthiest I could be. There was some, some selfishness driving that. There was some mixed motives driving the church growth. And I feel like the last 16 years, you know, the God that I believe in has been quietly dissecting my heart and going, oh, look, there's some more selfishness here. Let's take that out. And why are you so addicted to your success? Let's, let's pick that apart. So it's been a continual journey that continues to this day about sifting my motives and um, trying to, to figure out how to serve with a more pure, more altruistic heart. And, you know, that's something I'm really grateful for. So let's talk about your success, which is, I mean, I hate using the word extraordinary, but I, in fact, I use it in my podcast, Ordinary People Do Extraordinary Things, but you've had phenomenal success. And talk to, talk to me about 
how that came about. I mean, you kind of go through the dark ages, you reinvent with a new church. You've now turned this church over to Jeff and Jeff Brody. And how did you, what's, how did you find this new tightrope? And did you ever think it would be as long and high as it is in terms of what you've accomplished from that base? No, there was no strategic plan. It was an accident slash providence slash grace. So as part of my burnout recovery, I'm like, I got to find a new normal. I have to figure out how to survive in a healthy way that actually makes the church healthier too. Like, you know, a burned out pastor is not going to lead a healthy church. A driven pastor is not going to lead a healthy church. So I'm like, I got I to gotta get healthier. And, and, you know, for the sake of my marriage, for the sake of my sons, I had, I had to get healthier. And so part of that is I had no hobbies before I burned out. So I said, well, what do I enjoy doing? And I didn't know. I bought a camera. I tried photography that lasted a year. It wasn't really it. I, I started cycling. I enjoy barbecue. I still do that to this day. Uh, we got a used boat and I started boating, really enjoyed that. But I also really enjoyed writing and I loved helping leaders because, you know, I started in Oro Medanti for your Canadian listeners who know where that is. It's between Barrie and Aurelia, about an hour north of Toronto. I mean, we barely had the internet. I, I was starved for information as a young leader. And then, you know, fast forward to 2008, 2009 and beyond, we have the internet now. I'm like, oh, I could write a blog and I can start helping other leaders. And so I did this while I was still the lead pastor. I'd do it in the morning. I found it very energizing. I'd get up at 5 a.m., write a blog post two or three times a week and started blogging regularly in 2012. And what happened was lots of people showed up. There was no, it was the early days of the internet. It wasn't like marketing dollars or anything. It's just hundreds of thousands of page views in a matter of months. I'm like, whoa. And then I was doing some speaking because our church had grown. I was speaking in Canada. I'd gotten to know some people in the US and they kept inviting me down. And I was having these amazing conversations with leaders, often in green rooms, right? You're backstage yeah. waiting to go on. And you know that circuit, you're having these amazing conversations with people. And I always leave going, gosh, I wish my board could have heard that. I wish my staff could have heard that. I wish everybody could have heard it. And podcasting was something I was starting to get into as a listener. And I thought maybe I could start a leadership podcast. So in 2012, I started writing a blog regularly every week. And then in 2014, I launched the leadership podcast. And again, it was one of those things where it just kind of took off. And first tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people showed up. So fast forward to 2015, a year later after I launched the podcast, and I had some a little bit of speaking income, hadn't monetized the podcast or the blog, but I said, I'm going to take a pay cut at our church. I stayed on to teach at our church for a few years, but I have to trust God for the gap. Like, I don't know, we were putting two kids through computer engineering and accounting, and it's at university. I'm like, those are not cheap degrees, mm -hmm. and we weren't exactly floating in money, but it's like, okay, I'm taking a leap of faith. And honestly... That started in 2016. I went out on my own doing this. And, you know, it, it just took off from there when I gave it a little more focus. You know, we're, we're at 24 million downloads on the podcast now. And I get to interview leaders like you and top leaders from around the world. And the, the web page, you know, the website gets, I don't know, 7 million, 8 million hits, like page views a year. And we get the privilege of serving millions of leaders around the world. And I, I, I've sort of framed it as this. And so, you know, it wasn't part of a, a plan, a strategy. It just kind of happened. And then we reverse engineered, okay, well, 
I need to hire a team. We had so much inbound. It's like, how do we, how do we monetize this in an ethical way? And so 99% of what I do is free. And the 1% that gets paid pays for everything. So do, it worked do, out really well. Do you well. struggle with that? Because you could easily take your income up 10x, probably 100x. But do you feel that what's, that you're calling your faith, uh, it, it, that you almost feel like you're being an imposter in the world of capitalism if you did that? That you're more the, you're more the, the, the prophet that, that's willing to share versus the person that wants to sing for the supper? We left everything when we left law. I mean, I started at $19,000 a year and they gave me a house. And I promise you, law, I would have made a lot more money than that. Mm. So, you know, that was the 90s, so you got to add some inflation in, but it might be the equivalent of twenty-five dollars or $30,000 today. So it wasn't much. And we have more than enough. And, you know, we, 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 are, we have been provided for beyond our, our wildest dreams. And we get to give back to our church now. So the business has, the company has done well. And I, I, I thought about even launching a nonprofit and then having studied that, I thought, well, what's the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit? The question is, do you pay taxes? So it's like, I'll, I'll start a for-profit company and I'll just pay my taxes. So we just pay our taxes and we are more than provided for. And I have a beautiful team of like eight people and I get to pay them a living wage. And, you know, we'll see what I, what I learned because I really did struggle with that. And I have some good mentors in my life. And again, this goes back to my faith. So just translate it in whatever you want. But let God determine size. If he wants to give me more, he can give me more. If he wants to give me less, he can give me less. So I'm not really pursuing the finances. I have to make sure that we're in the black. I have to make sure that we, you know, and, you know, we've been we've been blessed beyond anything that we would imagine. We were able to put our kids through school. We live in a nice, uh, pretty much paid for house. We have a nice boat that we get to use. We get to take a vacation every year. I'm very thankful for that. We're not... We're not struggling, but the thing is like, I just want to help leaders and we want to be able to offer that. So, uh, you know, we have, we have enough money that I realize I don't think money is my motivator. Like you need to have enough to pay the bills, but let's, let's move on to something more significant. than that. So uh, I can understand that, I guess, when your audience is helping the leaders of churches, and I know you do a lot of work there and, and you know, that if I'm taking money from that church, that's money they could be using elsewhere. So I buy it. But as you've expanded your practice to outside of the church and to working with some yeah. leaders, it, it, is it not fair to say that if you underprice yourself, they don't value what I have to say? I know it sounds so True. moronic to a lot of people listening. How dare you? But the reality is, it's you know, it's that sense of you know, like the people you're talking about, the green room, or some of them are probably making ten to twenty x what you're making for that same hour speaking at a conference. How do you how do you find that balance so that you know when you're outside the the worlds of church leaders that you're pricing yourself accordingly, even if you just give it all away? Tony, it's an interesting model. So the way we've built the business to date is a lot of what I offer is for free. So if you have no money, or honestly, we serve a lot of leaders in Africa, India, we hear from people all over the world that we have the privilege of serving. A lot of my stuff is free. Um, so my blog is free. There's over a thousand articles on there. And I put good stuff. It's not like, you know, oh, here's the problem. Go buy the solution. Yeah. My podcast, I, I bring top leaders in the world for free. And then we have sponsors on the podcast. And then I have different price points. So if you want my time, yeah, actually, it's not cheap right now. So you're going to pay. I have a speaker's bureau. 
and it's going to cost you. I don't charge what, you know, a top name in business would. Um, but, you know, it's not cheap, but that's my time. I'm trading time for money. So there is more expensive stuff that helps pay the bill. But I also, for 397 447 I think the price is changing. I have something called the Art of Leadership Academy. That's a yearly fee. All of my premium courses are there, everything. It's like, I know church world well enough to know that even small churches can afford that. And if it's going to help grow your church, keep your staff, train them well. You know, the mantra is I went to law school, but nobody taught me how to lead a law firm. And I went to seminary and no one taught me how to run a church. So in the Art of Leadership Academy, what we do is we try to equip uh, small business leaders and church leaders with the tools that they need to do all the stuff you didn't learn in seminary, all the stuff you didn't learn in business school or law school. Because I've been to those schools and I know what's missing. So yeah, we have different price points. So free works for everybody. $397 a year, $447, whatever it is, you know, that can work for most people. And then there are higher priced products that involve my direct time and attention. And perhaps those will go up in, in value over time. But it's enough to pay the bills. And, you know, we're not we're not hurting right now. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. I have to be very careful with money because it's the downfall of a lot of church leaders, a lot of Christians. And so I try to hold it loosely. And we have really good advisors, really good accountants, really good lawyers, that kind of stuff, and spiritual advisors who speak into that. And I hope that it is something that really serves people. And yeah, if you want my personal time, it's going to cost you more than it would have a few years ago, but hopefully it's still fair. So talk to me about your wife that you met first year of law school. Um, she says, have you ever thought of being, and you go after it? She's had, she's must have sacrificed, uh, she must have got a lot of reward, but you know, that's a, your calling and how many people call on you doesn't always make time for a family, from what I understand in your profession. How did, how does she come to terms with that? And how did you come to terms with that? Because to continue to have such a successful marriage. It was really, really hard in our thirties. Um, we got married, I was 25 when we got married-ish. Yeah, 25. And when we hit, like, you know, we did law school together and then I went to seminary. But when we moved up here and we started the churches, it got really hard because it was a rocket curve growth. Like we almost, we didn't quite start growing from day one, but it might've been day two. New people started showing up and a handful of people became dozens, became hundreds, became thousands. And up until my burnout, I didn't handle that well. I I sacrificed I sacrificed my family on the altar of ministry, and that was a horrible mistake. And that's one of the, you know, not like I went to my kids' games, but I was I was home, but I wasn't really present. I was working too many hours. I was tired all the time. I've apologized to my grown kids for this so many times, and they're like, Dad, it wasn't that bad, but I, I think it was bad. And there was there was some pain there for sure. And Tony paid for that. My wife's name is Tony. Uh, but my burnout was such a gift because that stopped me dead in my tracks. And I'm like, I got to figure out another way. And so for the last 15, 16 years, we've been working on a much more shared vision. Uh, I have much more sustainable rhythm. It's one of those things where I do a lot less and I work a lot fewer hours. In fact, in my company right now, we're experimenting with a four-day work week. So I should have three days off on the weekend. It doesn't always work out every week, but I want my team to be well-blessed. And, you know, we, we have the time to do what we want and we have shared hobbies and that. And she's sharp. She's a pharmacist and a lawyer. 
So she was able to practice part-time when the kids were younger and then scaled that up to full-time. And a few years ago, she pivoted. She wrote her own book. She does a podcast, the Smart Family Podcast. And, uh, you know, so we're sort of working in the same fields these days. But yeah, that was, that's been a journey. And I would say it's a lot better now than it was. But I'm a slow learner and I had to figure out what's really important. And I had to learn that chasing success at the expense of family isn't really success. My, my mantra has been, I'll just, I know you got another question, but my mantra has become, I want the people closest to me to have the best experience of me. So I want my wife and my sons and the people I know in real life. Because it doesn't really matter if somebody in LA thinks you're amazing if your wife doesn't want to talk to you right now. And so I want the people closest to me to have the best experience of me. That's true of my staff. You know, sometimes I used to have meltdowns like, why didn't this happen the way I want it to? And it's like, if I have a meltdown like that, I want it to happen in my head these days <laughs> and then, then run it through a filter before other people hear it. And so, yeah, it's been a, been a period of growth. And one of the great joys of being in the same place for 26 years is you don't get away like people see the growth. They remember how you were. And we'll talk with some of the people who I've worked with for 15 years. It's like, well, old Carrie would have, but you know, hopefully today we can handle it this way. So it's it's very humbling and very grounding to be in the same place for 26 years. And one of the great rewards is like, you know, we had we had a trip on the weekend where it was two hours to get to this two-hour event and two hours back. I look forward to those car conversations. I look forward to trips together with her. We're on the road more together now that we're empty nesters. And, you know, we still have our, our snags, but they're snags. They're not, they're not, they're not the crises that were there 20 years ago. You know, Superman's weakness that could take him down was kryptonite. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to just take a guess. Yours is guilt. Oh, really? And huh. the reason I'm being is because you brought it up a couple of times that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it's almost this imposter syndrome that you're kind of, you coach, you know, I, when I, I talk about your success or I talk about, you, you know, you, 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 you're, you're almost guilty about being what you've accomplished. I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's, that's the, that's the, you know, a lot of Christians, it's money, it's, you know, they get ahead of themselves or that's how things fail. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. it, it, it's interesting that you have this even now, and I'm, I'm not a, pretending to be a psychiatrist or psychoanalyst. Yeah. But even now, it's it strikes me that you still suffer a little bit from not so much imposter syndrome that I don't feel I belong, but the imposter syndrome is I shouldn't be here. Yeah, you're probably right about that. And it's, I don't know what to do about that, but you're probably right about that. There is there's this sense, I think part of it is being Canadian. We don't know how to do success well. And some of it probably has to do with the church. Like I, I just, I see it go wrong so many times that I'm just really cautious about that. You know, that is something to unpack with my counselor. That's, that is know, something it's an interesting, it. it's, it's, a, I, it's a really good observation, it, Tony. It, and I, 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 I'm taking notes on that. You know, and, and I'll I'll finish my questions to you, and then we'll turn it back yeah. to however you want to do it. But um, <laughs> this is fascinating. Always, I always end my conversation with the three things I've taken away, and the first one is you know the sense of the three tiers of leadership. But put yourself in a position where they can grow without you, and that's so easy to say 
But time and time again, I've experienced that it's very difficult for someone to hand over to the rudder. And I've seen it with parents and children. I've seen it with leaders in business. I've seen it with, uh, you know, athletes that used to be at the top of the game and the next generation's coming up to, to take over the game. And it, it's just wonderful observation for all of us is to that real success is when everything that's been around you can grow without you. I, I love that one. I, the second thing is this, uh, I want those closest to me to have the best experience of me. And I think that is so profound because as you get out there and you're building an entourage and an audience, you know, best-selling author, millions of people listening to the podcast. And I mean, this numbers, this is a pinball game in this age of noise yeah. that's, that's turning over and over for you because you put out great content. To have that insight, not when you're on your deathbed looking back saying, I wish I had done that, but to have found it so early in life, knowing that you have such a runway ahead of you, is powerful advice for anybody listening to the show because that is ultimately your true test of character and your legacy is the people that are closest to you, how they experience you is very often how they'll go through life offering other people experiences. So I love that. And then the the third thing is that you're not afraid to talk about your faith or your calling. I just had Reverend Dr. Gordon Postel on the uh, podcast and he talked to, you know, he was a debauchery youth and he had this calling one day with the Bible on I, I really thought about it for a while because I immediately yeah. dismissed it going, you know, and then really realized that that was so powerful. He went from being, you know, a security guard and a minor to talking to the United Church in Rosedale to sponsor him to become a reverend. And that, wow. and, and I look at these callings out there and I wonder if whether you, whether you believe or not in a, in a, uh, a greater God. And I think ultimately we all believe that there's something out there is opening your mind to having these callings is not something that just has to be within the boundaries of, of a church or believing in a Jesus Christ, but realizing that maybe sometimes those callings are out there. If you take away the vanity plate of, I should be a lawyer because my dad wanted it, or I need a fancy car to impress and realize that I always say head, heart, and hands, how you think, how you feel, and how you be behave. When you can connect those, that's a life worth living. And and Carrie, you're just such an extraordinary human being. And I don't know how we turned this into a double interview, but I Yeah, I, I don't know either. It's, it's this fascinating. Is fun. I've never done an episode like this. But you know, let me let me go back to your second point. Yeah. Because uh, you know, it was probably Stephen Covey in the seven habits of highly effective people. He has you kind of write out your eulogy or whatever. But I got, I got thinking about that because what justified my dysfunction in my thirties, not that I'm now not dysfunctional. I think we all, we all, we're all work in progress, but you know, what just when in my head, what justified my failure at home in my thirties was my success in the church. And it makes it even more, if you're like successful in advertising, that's one thing as you've been. But when you're a pastor, it can really mess with your head because it's also what you believe and it's your faith and everything. And look at all these people are coming to faith and it's great. So if I was a workaholic, which I was, and I'm in recovery now, I, I, I just justified it because it's like, well, look, it's all for God, right? And then I realized at the end of the day, 
you know, imagine at your funeral. I've done a lot of funerals in my life as a pastor. Um, who shows up? Well, you got some colleagues and your friends, but I've never seen, because I've been with so many family members when, you know, dad's gone and the sons and daughters never pull out a resume. They never do. They never like, look at what my dad did. He was COO or he did this or look, he had 24 million downloads on his podcast. They don't care. They don't care. The stories the family tells are, he was there for me or he wasn't. He took me down the aisle and showed me frosted flakes when I was six. You know, that's all they remember. Your wife remembers, did he love me? Did he care for me? Was he there for me? You know, my wife's love language is quality time. Mine is acts of service. I would rather have her empty the dishwasher than sit down and have a long conversation. But, you know, I'm learning how to change that. And then you realize at the end of the day, a lot of these, I've, I've heard Arthur Brooks talk about deal friends and real friends. Your deal friends are the people who help you in business, who help you in ministry. And they all shrink away and you're ending up with real friends. And those real friends are based on, did you really care about me? Were you there for me in my hour of need? Did we have a lot of fun shared experiences? You know, we love going out in the boat in the summer. We love hanging out over great meals in our backyard or their backyard with friends, that kind of stuff. Like that, that is the stuff of life. And that is the stuff. And so I just want to be focused on that moving forward because I kind of realize that that's what makes for a rich life. That's what makes for a good life. And, you know, I, so I just, I just, I'm still, you know, in recovery of, from success addiction and do the downloads matter to me probably more than they should. But I also realize there's other stuff that really Yeah, but matters. you're putting stuff out. This is my whole thing about this imposter. You're putting out content that everybody that downloads and listens has an opportunity to be better. You're not trying to sell them somebody. You're not trying to do a Ponzi scheme. You're not trying to you know, uh, just get angry at the world. You're putting out yeah. very positive content. And I'm hoping when I, the people who listen to my podcast, you get, I hope it disturbs you. You get another 5,000 downloads from my, my audience because wait. I'm going, you know, I want them to listen to you and I want them to become well, a fan of yours. Because once Karen talked to me about it and I started listening to your content, it's really exceptional. And it's exceptional well, because, totally. you know, and I, and we said from the day one, it's, it's exceptional because it's about putting the human in humanity. You use it under the under the uh, auspices of, the, of Jesus Christ and the church. I respect you for that. That's your stage. Yeah. I, I, that's what you believe in. But more importantly, what I believe in is people are going to be a better human for listening for you. Well, that is my hope, you know, and, you know, if, if Christianity in its, in its best form, and it doesn't always have best forms these days, but in its best form, that's what happens is you end up a transformed person. And I think that's what's happening. If you look at the lens of my journey, you know, the ancients had a name for it. They called it sanctification. And it's the process of being made holy. And holy is a weird word. And all it means is different. So you look at me at 57 verses 37 verses 17, there's some really big differences. And I hope at 67 and 77, there's some even bigger differences. And, you know, as, as you and I say, uh, you know, as we talked about in this interview, I, I just think that'll be great for the world if we, if we keep being made different. Because for me to say, I'm right and you're wrong, Tony, and I'm just going to bunker down in my position and shoot arrows at you, how does anybody win in that one? I don't know. It's a great and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the work you do. This has been a fascinating conversation and I'm just really grateful for we, it. We might have to do another one. That was, uh, I, that was I'm fantastic. down for that. 
That was fantastic. Yeah. In fact, I'd love to get you on uh, stage one day and interview you in some of the conferences I host because I think it just... I would love that. We'll man. do that. We'll figure out a way and I'll come up and see you and we'll... Next time I'm on the way to Muskoka because I'd love to... Uh, yeah. Love to break bread and taste some of your barbecue. We're we're there. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Like I said, a really wide-ranging flip-the-mic conversation that got more interesting as it went along. Uh, I just love Tony, and uh, that was my first time meeting him. We got introduced by Karen Gordon, as we indicated, and uh, I am looking forward to getting to know him a whole lot better. That's one of the benefits of podcasting, right? You get to meet all these fascinating people. Want to thank our partners who make this happen, Ministry Grid. Hey, for you podcast listeners, $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price. If you go to ministrygrid.com slash carry, that's C-A-R-E-Y, you'll get everything you need to train your volunteers. And Convoy of Hope is doing spectacular work around the world. If you or your church need a partner to get to places where you can't go, uh, Convoy of Hope is literally all over the world, including Ukraine and all over America. You can go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. Next episode, we got Nona Jones. She is back and we're going to get personal and talk about insecurity and comparison and Brazilian butt lifts. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable saying that. Here's an excerpt. But we're six or seven months into it and pastors were like, can't wait to get back to church. And it was one of these things where I was like, you can't wait to get, like, are you not like gathering? Like what's happening? Are you not using technology? And what I realized was it was all about um, having the attention of the people, like having people look at them and them being able to look at the people. And so I would say that I think that's very unique to a pastor as opposed to a business leader, because while it is true that, you know, a CEO or a vice president may have the attention of their team, they're not necessarily in a perpetual state of trying to grow their team, right? Whereas in a church setting, it's like a perpetual state of trying to grow your attendance. So that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, a fascinating conversation with Stephen M. R. Covey, where we talked about the legacy of his father, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. We are going to talk to Dion Nicholas about AI, Patrick Lencioni, Sint Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, Tim Tebow, Sharon Hade Miller, Les McEwen, Brian Koppelman, the producer and writer behind uh, Super Pumped and Billions. Also, Chris Anderson of TED Talks, Rich Birch, Joey and Christy Spears, and we just confirmed James Clear. I am so pumped for that conversation. We're going to make your habits all atomic for 2023. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, you are a fantastic audience. We hear from you regularly. Hey, if you appreciated this episode and what we do here, would you leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast? I so appreciate it. And I want to give you something to help you kickstart your marketing efforts today. We just talked to Tony Chapman, but if you want a practical resource, uh, I have got something for you. I sit down with a senior executive at Chick-fil-A to reveal some of the secrets behind their marketing success and how you can apply these principles to your organization. Interested? Get it at churchmarketingsecrets.com. That's churchmarketingsecrets.com. That's free for you. Anyway, thank you so much, guys. We're back next time, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. <laughs>